RPN is not responsible for the views, actions, statements, or opinions of its guests, advertisers, or even its viewers. The information contained in this program is not to be confused with medical or legal advice. An appearance on this platform is not necessarily an endorsement. But as always, we encourage you to do your own research. Enjoy the show. Good evening, everyone. You're listening to Red Pill 78. As always, my name is Zach Payne, the Corruption Detector, and this is another edition of Red Pill News for Friday Night Livestream. Joining me in the studio tonight for part two of our conversation about the secret Illuminati bloodline, my good friend Duppy deep dive researcher and uh, general autist when it comes to family trees. If you guys missed the first show we did on this subject a couple of weeks ago, I don't know. I hate to tell you to go watch that first, but you know, and I guess if you're already here, just go back afterwards and watch it because there is a lot of background information that I think will serve you well when understanding exactly what's going on here tonight. We left off at a very particular point in our last broadcast, and Duffy is going to pick it up for us right there and take us back in, diving deep into this secret bloodline you are not following. So if you wouldn't mind, do me a favor. Hit that like button. Help me out by sharing the show. Let's uh, get the word out, and hopefully we'll have a good time. Tend to think we will. All right, so I suppose without further ado, if you could just sit back and relax, grab your popcorn because we're going to be right back after this. A new study reveals a surefire way to increase your odds of losing weight is the habit of stepping on a scale. Now, researchers say stepping on a scale frequently helps you to shed unwanted pounds compared to if you simply weren't getting on a scale because it helps you keep your goals at the front of your mind. But hundreds of thousands are looking for a way to accelerate their weight loss with supplemental support. Now, I found an exceptional alternative that uses naturally sourced and science-backed ingredients from Mother Earth to support your weight management, reduce cravings, and give you a boosted metabolism. More importantly, you can save up to 51% off right now this month only by simply heading to trimwithred.com or just click the link in the description box below for this limited time offer before they sell out. Once again, that's trimwithred.com, and when you support my sponsors, you support this channel. And welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Please, if you wouldn't mind, join me in welcoming our guest for this evening, Duppy. Duppy, how are you, sir? I am wonderful, Zach. How are you? I am doing so well. I'm really looking forward to this. I uh, just want to let everybody know we moved both heaven and earth 
to get this program on the air as quick as we could. Originally, I was booked like all the way. I mean, like right now I'm booked out until like mid-December. So we had to book this show initially for like late November. And uh, by the grace of God, I had a cancellation and I was like, uh, are you willing, Duppy? Let's get you back on the show as soon as we possibly can, because obviously this subject matter is so fascinating. So Duppy was gracious enough to uh, uh, change his schedule to come here with us tonight. And uh, Duppy, I understand that uh, we're going to begin this presentation, um, I guess, slightly before we ended the last one. If we've got a couple of things you want to make sure people are aware of. Yeah, there was a, a key slide that um, I neglected to mention one or two things that I think are kind of important, but mm -hmm. it dovetails right into um, where the rest of the show goes. So okay, awesome, awesome. It's not it's not a big jump or anything like that. Okay, all right. Um, and by the way, I was absolutely delighted that you found room for this show because probably like you, or even more so. It pained me terribly to have to end it where we did because I don't like leaving the audience hanging, and I'll bet you don't either. <laughs> no, absolutely. And uh, in case in case you guys doubt that statement at all, uh, you should go check out some of the other shows that Dubby has done with, like, Johnny Q and uh, Anka Vanka. You're talking about eight-hour streams. Like, this guy has got so much information about this stuff. Uh, what we're doing here, what we did here last time, is truly a surface-level scratch. Like, you can go much, much deeper if you go and check out those other channels and the work that he's done over there. I, I, I just personally, eight hours is uh, my limit on a stream. <laughs> I don't know that I can handle it. And it, it's kind of like uh, eight hours is a normal show for this stuff. And by the way... There's a follow-up show to this one on the East India Company that oh, yes. I'd be more than happy to do whenever you want, but um, it's kind of a standalone, so it's not really as dependent on what came previously. So okay, well, I, you know, I am, I, you know, I am actually interested in doing that. So we'll definitely get that one on the books as well after we're done here. And I also wanted to say. Uh, whoever it is that's signing me up for seven free tickets to these movie uh, presentations at the Scientology Celebrity Center in Los Angeles, you don't have to do that. I don't know why somebody <laughs> keeps doing this. And let me actually – let me tell you these names because these are not real names. Like these are – this is clearly somebody who's having a laugh, and uh, and it's not just – it's not just film premieres made by Scientologists. It's also like uh, free concerts and, uh, I don't know, events all over the country, and the names are just so ridiculous every single time. Uh, here we go. My, my free film screening, seven tickets for Braxton Lazen. That's not a real name. And uh, the other one was seven free tickets for Jarell Klosterman. I don't think that's a real name either. Uh, so, yeah, kind of funny. I just thought I, I, I would uh, mention that here tonight. Debbie, right. you're, you're not a Scientologist, are you? <laughs> oh, dear God, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, go ahead. Boot it up. Let's see. All right. And while I'm doing this, I wanted to say hello to my friend Debbie out there. You Debbie. know who that is. Oh, absolutely. Debbie is uh, our number one mod. That's correct. That's right. First, first Amendment rights is here. 
<laughs> she says it's <laughs> not me, Zach. She this we, this is uh, hopefully you call in in the second in the second hour and we can talk about that. That's great. All right. Okay, so we are backing up to the uh, the phoenix, the yeah. serpent, and the dragon. Yeah, and I, I just I'm going to talk. A, uh, this slide that you see on the bottom is sort of the the meat of the whole dig. All right, honey, I just shut Rumble off and I'm turning it back on. So yeah, so if you can tell me whether or not this is working. Okay, so hang on, let me listen here. Okay, okay, it's 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 working again. Um, hold on, let me tell the audience. Reboot, refresh. I mean, I started Rumble again. God, it's, I don't know why we're having so many problems. Looks good. Okay, people are saying that they can hear us now. Okay. All right, so let's go back to the BlackRock, which is interesting because, of course, we have one of the largest uh, uh, corporate shareholders being BlackRock. We also have the BlackRock in Mecca. Uh, we also have uh, right. Saturn, which has some BlackRock connotations, and uh, obviously the Saturnian death cult that has a, a lot of uh, uh, implications within these societies, I think, as well. Right, so this this thing apparently had a lot of influence in the ancient world, and so you know in this bloodline we have this this family from Syria who may have been Phoenician mm -hmm. uh, to some extent, and this family uh, they were the kings of a city state called Emesa. I have annotated down there. Mm -hmm. They were the high priests. They were the priest kings of the city-state. They were the high priest of this temple where the Black Rock uh, with a phoenix, associated with a phoenix, in fact, if, if also um, an image of this particular coin blown up a little bit more, but if you look really closely, there's a little phoenix embossed on this Black Rock. So this is a direct parallel with the ancient Egyptian myth of the phoenix being on the primordial mound, um, the abode of the gods, the Bethel, the house of God. So it's almost like this, this rock is symbolic of the territory of the gods. And I have a whole section that I, I think I left out the last time on the symbolism associated with this primordial mound from the ancient Egyptian uh, creation myth, but the phoenix is associated with it. So anyway, we're at 200-ish AD or 100-ish AD with this family in Syria, and their offspring became emperors of Rome. And one of those people was Constantine. And everybody's heard that name before. Mm -hmm. So... You know, you definitely have this sort of continuous power structure from there on that made its way up into Europe, both in Britain, this top bar. Now, this is the ancient Britons, like King Arthur, mm -hmm. and also the Merovingians on the continent. And I think I found uh, genetic, you know, family tree links to support 
that uh, Constantine's descendants became the royalty in Europe at the time roughly coincident with the fall of the Roman Empire. So does that indicate that maybe the empire – the Western Roman Empire falling was was a managed decline in favor of infiltrating the barbarian tribes in Europe with Constantine's bloodline? Mm-hmm. And a possible – Another clue that I neglected to mention last time was that during the era of these Severan Roman emperors that descended from those people in Syria, the Roman military adopted these dragon banners, and they were kind of like a a windsock, so they aided the archers in battle, Mm -hmm. but they also supposedly the head of this, this dragon banner as the wind blew through it they whistled hmm. apparently if you have enough of them it's pretty damn loud hmm. and it, it it seems to have served a couple of purposes one was to intimidate the enemy but also allow the roman troops to via sound recognize where the elite corps surrounding the top commanders in the field were at on the battlefield um, this banner may have come from China originally via some Scythian mercenaries. Scythians were the people that – nomadic people that occupied the steppes in Asia, and they were known to have served as Roman mercenaries. So there's a potential link there to China, um, but either way, by the time of the Constantinian emperors, this banner was very uh, – important in Roman military circles, and all of the emperors at that time were – they got to be emperors via the military. So perhaps this dragon banner became symbolic of the Constantinian bloodline. That's the proposal, I guess, that I'm making. Okay. And so what we had was we had uh, Constantine's – one of Constantine's sons – apparently bred into the written tribes, the people up in Britain, uh, who, who, who sort of became the Welsh later on. Um, and also, this is a really odd thing. According to the uh, genealogy charts that were preserved, um, Constantine's cousin, Maxentius, did the same thing. Uh, he he wedded or bred a a Welsh princess or Britain princess at the time. So he had Constantine's bloodline in, in two different places going on up in uh, Britain very early. This is you know 350ish AD. Likewise, you had um, Constantine's nephew, Emperor Julian also known as Julian the Apostate, because he was a pagan. Um, He wed Constantine's daughter, and their children sort of mysteriously didn't survive childbirth, but there's some very odd circumstances reported by Roman historians. And i got to wonder if that's an actual early 
example of Roman propaganda trying to hide these kids that mm. may have been raised up in um, Gaul, which is Germany and France, the Rhine River area. And lo and behold, that is the Da Vinci Code myth. You know, where did the Merovingian kings come from? And, you know, we've been fed the Mary Magdalene story, but this actually looks to me like there's better evidence that these were the heirs of Constantine, who later became the Merovingians and Charlemagne and all of that. And, and eventually we get these two bloodlines the one in Britain and the one in, in on the continent, merging almost exactly a thousand years after the fall of the Bro Roman Empire via the end of the War of the Roses. So there's, there's this red-white symbolism with the War of the Roses once again, the mm -hmm. red and the white dragon bloodlines. Um, so it's kind of an interesting theory, I think. Well, yeah, I, I mean, it seems like pretty obvious that we're looking at two branches of the same tree here, first of all, which yeah. which then comes back together. Because how do you get, I mean, the two uh, opposing yet so similar banners representing these two opposing sides, well, you know? <laughs> yeah, technically there isn't a white dragon banner mm. that that is talked about. Definitely there's a red dragon banner. That's the present-day flag of Wales, the Welsh. Yep. And, you know, then there's the King Arthur story that goes along with it and talk of the dragon bloodline up there. But there is some evidence that the white dragon bloodline also makes sense. And remember, red and white were the colors of Upper and Lower Egypt when you go way back in time. So mm -hmm. there might be... A connection there. It made it into the flag of England. It's red and white. The original one was red and white. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's patterns. There's also, and this, I'm going to talk about another show that could be done that I think is really <laughs> interesting. Um, there's a legend uh, called the Legend of Melusine, and it has to do in the Middle Ages with a king marrying a woodland spirit who might have been evil. And in that legend, when he marries her, she insists that she can't, that he cannot um, watch her bathing on Sunday. And, of course, he can't resist and eventually does so. And it turns out she's like a lizard or a fish from the waist down and, yeah, it's one of those interesting stories that even Richard the Lionheart, King Richard of England, uh, supposedly mentioned something about his bloodline in that context. Well, it turns out this this symbol here is associated with that legend. It is also um, the symbol that's on the Starbucks logo. Yes, it is. <laughs> Except in that version, there's two tails. But I actually found this lineage or this symbol here on John Cusack's family tree. Oh, and John it, Cusack, and it is, huh? And it is in the right position on his family tree to connect the Cusack family to this big royal bloodline. So mm, very interesting. It's pretty interesting. 
Yeah, especially because oh. he's he's kind of he's kind of a putz nowadays. Oh God, yes, you're putz. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Ah, oh, God, yeah. I, I remember. <laughs> I called somebody. I went to Catholic school when I was a kid, and I called. I I used the word putz, and the nun got very upset. She was like, "Do you even know what that means?" And I was like, "No, I just heard somebody say it." <laughs> <laughs> it's like Yiddish for penis, if anybody doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. Very funny. Okay. Uh, one, one more note is that in looking through these trees through the, the Dark Ages and maybe even the Middle Ages, there is a very large amount of the names Constantine, Severa, and Solomon. Mm. That you see popping up, uh, you know, with important people's names, mm-hmm. and those are all, you know, the names in the past. Constantine was a member of the Severan dynasty uh, in Rome, so that knocks off the first two. And then, if you go back far enough, of course, you might get Solomon mm-hmm. through that that bloodline that I showed last time. Yep. So all of this gets to this Cavendish family. And if you remember, this is their mm-hmm. coat of arms, which has the three deer heads, YYY, which might be 666, because Y happens to be the sixth letter of the Phoenician alphabet, which came from earlier Egyptian hieroglyphs. Mm-hmm. I showed all that stuff the last time. So you would think, well, what makes this family, yeah, they're dukes now, but what makes them more powerful than, say, a king or whatever? And that's where you get into their interest in the East India Company, the Virginia Company, along with some other clues uh, involving the author um, Thomas Hobbes, who was – basically his whole career was paid for by the Cavendish family. And that all leads to – kind of the corporate world and and the modern-day philosophy of the New World Order, which seems to stem from Hobbes' Leviathan. These were the guys that paid Hobbes to write that stuff. So so you've got this this pirate's flag right there. Are, are you saying that uh, they were a pirate family that, like, went legit starting these shipping companies with all of the wealth that they acquired? Kind of, sort of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, I get into this in detail in the East India Company yeah. show, but there was a branch of the Cavendish family uh, where – how do I say this clearly? <laughs> a guy named Thomas Cavendish. He's known as Thomas the Navigator. Um, he was a privateer at pretty much at the same time as Sir Francis Drake. Right before the Eng- the East India Company was set up, so they were like doing the reconnaissance or intelligence work. These privateers mm-hmm. in the fifty years, maybe a hundred years prior to the East India Company. Um, so yeah, the Cavendishes were very instrumental in setting the stage for what became the East India Company. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. yes. Okay. So this family was. Already getting very wealthy at the time of Henry VIII, um, this William Cavendish here, uh, he was the Lord Treasurer under Henry VIII. And when Henry VIII dissolved the monasteries, 
you know, during the Protestant Reformation. Yep. Um, he gave all that loot from the monasteries and the Catholic Church in England to his buddies and included William Cavendish. Nice. Now, you could say, okay, well, what, what makes these guys so important? Well, their bloodline makes them important, as this graph intends to show. These guys were the nobility. They descended from William the Conqueror. They just weren't kings, but they were of the same bloodline. We'll see a little bit of that in the show coming up. Okay. All right, so I can move on. Here's here's where Emperor Julian, and I might have shown this the last show, so I'll go through it kind of quickly. So Emperor, Jul- Emperor Julian, Constantine's nephew, had three kids that supposedly didn't survive childbirth. I have reason to suspect that that might have been Roman propaganda to hide that they were infiltrating mm-hmm. the barbarian tribes because Julian set up a kingdom for a particular tribe, the Salian Franks. He set up a special kingdom for them inside the Roman Empire boundary. The boundary was the Rhine River. So the Roman Empire is in gray mm-hmm. in this uh, this map. So he set them up a kingdom here which is modern-day Belgium for the most part. And if you think about it, where's the EU headquartered? Mm-hmm. Belgium. Yep. <laughs> I think I think NATO might be headquartered there as well. I can't remember offhand. But anyway, so there were these three kids that were raised amongst the Franks, probably by – and this is an example of my spreadsheet. This is about one two-hundredth of it. <laughs> Wow, I was going to say, how much further out does it go? <laughs> oh, it's it's massive. Um, and it looks to me like there's evidence that one of his generals who was um, of the Salian Franks might have raised these kids. Um, I won't go into the details of that, but this is the – Perhaps a debunking of the Da Vinci Code and its precursor, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, debunking that story somewhat to where, you know, rather than being the descendants of Jesus, these were the descendants of Constantine. So if I can just make an admission here, I know mm-hmm. like what the plot of the Da Vinci Code is. I mean, you basically summarized it right there, but. I've never actually seen it or read it, and I know it was like a cultural phenomenon like everybody else did, but it was just something that I never got into. Yeah, it, it was a good story. Yeah. I read the book in like one 24-hour uh, binge basically because it was a really good story, It's a fa- you know, and it's fascinating to contemplate mm-hmm. where these people came from. It was – you know, Dan Brown's book was written – with the influence of an earlier book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail by a guy named Henry Lincoln, and I forget who the second uh, author was. But they told the story um, based on a legend of one of the early Merovingian kings' mother being raped by a creature that came out of the sea. Mm. And... They thought that that creature coming out of the sea was symbolic of the fish, Pisces, Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, you know, early Christianity was associated right. with the fish, the yeah. fishermen. Yeah. Now, a reasonable explanation as to why early Christianity was associated with the fish is that Jesus was born right around the time where the great month in the astrological world transitioned from Aries to Pisces. Right, right. So part of that uh, is that, you know, Jesus was born. Born a lamb, but became a fisher of men. Mm-hmm. And I'm quoting Ralph Ellis with this, but I think that stuff makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That, I've looked into that, that quite a bit, too. I, yeah. It, yeah. So that's where they concocted the the relationship to, to Jesus, which is an interesting story. And Dan Brown played off of that mm-hmm. uh, in his novel. Um, but if you look really hard at that, I think there's even better evidence that the Merovingian kings came from Constantine's offspring who were raised – or grandsons or grandchildren who were raised in Gaul. And I'll show you where, according to the way the bad people in this world think, apparently, it fits. But that's at the end of this this presentation. All right, Debbie, if you might, before we continue, over on Rumble, uh, Freight Awakening says, I'm hoping all of this lineage leads directly to Diane Feinstein and we can celebrate <laughs> that we finally secured victory. <laughs> well, like in, a, in a way it does um, because you got to remember from the first show, mm-hmm. the earliest parts of this bloodline were associated with Israel, Egypt, and the Phoenicians. Certainly, certainly. So in a manner of speaking, Fredo, yes, we can. Uh, and then just real quick, over here on the Foxhole as well, Pilled.net, FilterDog1 says it's going to be lit tonight. Nikki the Greek dropping a cookie, so did Porpoiseful. Vader369 says, Redpill78, thank you so much for what you do. We appreciate all your hard work, brother. Thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. FilterDog1 says, the Uman and Thuman. The Uman and Thuman. I don't know what that's about. Didn't that come up on an earlier show? Hmm. Maybe the uh, last time I was on. I, I remember you talking about this at one okay. point. Okay, yeah. So maybe this is something that somebody mentioned previously, and I'm just – I mean, it, it sounds familiar, but I don't know what it would be. Okay. Uman and Thuman in the her- – oh, yeah, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, they are uh, lights and ele- – hold on. Lights and breastplates? Okay, so we've been taught since the days of the prophet that the Urim Urim and Thummim Thummim, were returned with the plates to the angel. They have no record of the prophet having the Urim and Thummim after the organization of the church. It looks like a couple of um, rocks with a a pyramid on it, one pyramid with the, the top pointed up and then the other one with the bottom pointed up. You want to? This is from the Book of Mormon. Up. This is from the Book of Mormon. That's why I don't know yeah. about it. I heard. Okay. I heard plates. <laughs> okay, and that yeah. immediately got me thinking of of Mormonism. Also, yes. yes. Well, and There's apparently a... it's part of ancient Jewish history as well. Uh, the Urim and Thummim was a priestly device for obtaining oracles. There we go. That's that's a better explanation of it than that. That's from the Jewish Virtual Library. Well, there's a there's an interesting parallel to the Mormon teachings mm. in in that 
I think there's a, a good chance that the Phoenicians may have gotten to the New World a long, long I, time ago. Like I agree. I agree. BC. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I may have talked about that in the last show. Yeah, we um, we definitely talked about the um uh the, the characteristic connections between Phoenicians and then a number of other civilizations like including like Vikings right. and stuff like that. Obviously, any any of those red and white uh um sails and then um the uh, uh metalworking and stuff and I I mentioned the Oh, I'm because I'm from Michigan and there's a whole bunch of copper mines that yeah. are ancient uh and also uh, because they were they predated the Native Americans that lived in that area, uh, and the copper itself that was used by Phoenicians to make bronze in like the uh, the Middle East, uh, it can be like chemically matched to the copper that's coming from those mines, or that rather came that's, that's, from those. That's mines. right. I've read yes. that stuff too. Yes, um, I love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, listen, I want to get your thoughts, but let me just say, Trace ten ten. Thank you for the cookie, Sean Joe. Uh, thank you one two three SKG. Thank you as well. And Space Coast Patriot says, I absolutely love this dig. History is my thing. Good. Then I'm glad you're here. So yes, uh, the idea that the Phoenicians were here. Before anybody else, first of all, it's totally plausible, and I think it's highly probable, uh, given their influence, uh, uh, apparently, on quite a few civilizations throughout time. Yeah, there, there's definitely hints out there. I even found one that other people haven't talked about, mm. and that is, you know, the Phoenicians were known for their purple dye, right, which mm -hmm. became really important. Only royalty could wear it, all that kind of thing. Um, the, purple re the, it, the purple revolution. Yeah, yeah totally and, and archaeologically, they have found uh, evidence of the manufacture of those purple dyes around the Mediterranean because mm -hmm. what they find is these massive, massive piles of shells mm -hmm. where they were you know, using to extract the dye. Well, I found a reference that in like 2010, somebody found a big pile of shells like that in the Yucatan. Mm-hmm. But nobody's ever made anything out of it. I just kind of accidentally found out. I was like, whoa. And supposedly that thing dates back to 1000 BC, which is wow. right in the wheelhouse of the Phoenician's heyday. So are they and are they using like those little sand clams, those purple sand clams? They're, they're uh, the Murex shell. And it, it's – I don't know if you call it a clam – Definitely a gastropod, but they have kind of a curly Q oh, okay. so, um, yeah, shape to the shell. Yeah, I, I, I can see it. I can see it. Yeah, that wasn't what I was thinking, but um, yeah, yeah, Murex. And there's all kind of legends about, like, they can't – there's even a History Channel show about trying to find which creature – the scriptures refer to that that die was made from, and you know they leave you hanging at the end because they can't really pin it down and stuff like that. But you know, supposedly it's the Murex shell. Okay. Um. And, and there was also a, a guy from Lebanon a few years ago that built a replica Phoenician ship, and he was trying to replicate the legend of a voyage the Phoenicians took. At the behest of the pharaoh at the time, where they embarked from the north end of the Red Sea, and they were supposedly trying to circumnavigate Africa. Mm -hmm. And so this guy in, in 2015 built this spec Phoenician boat 
to, you know, to the quality and, and construction of what they think the Phoenicians might have had. Mm-hmm. And he replicated that voyage and sailed around the Horn of Africa out into the Atlantic. But then he got blown all the way to the Caribbean. <laughs> so, Wild. Yeah. What I can't figure out is why did it take until Columbus, if they knew about the New World, way going way, way back, why was it held a secret for so long? Well, there's the rub, you know. I mean, maybe they didn't because, I mean, allegedly people thought that you would sail off the edge of the world. I mean, fear is a very powerful tool that can be used to stop people from doing something. So, you know, perhaps uh, the Phoenicians had set up these routes, they used them, only select cultures remembered them, and uh, they continued to keep them a secret so that they could uh, control those routes and uh, be able to. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And the Book of Mormon basically alludes to Egyptians or actually Israelites yes. getting to the New World that far back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there there's something here. It's just missing some pieces. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that could be a whole side dig on itself, as you know. Yes. If you ever studied those copper mines in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great. I've I've been to them. It's actually, I mean, you can't go inside of them or anything. They're basically like pits in the ground, but right. you, you're walking, uh, I think it's on Isle Royal because my friend and I went and, and we hiked Isle Royal for like a week. And uh, as we were like walking through, you have to stay on the path because if you step off, then there's a chance you could fall in and right. they'll never find you. Right. Yeah. And supposedly... The amount of copper that was mined out of those ancient mines is huge, mm-hmm. and, and they say that the, the volume presumably could have fueled the Bronze Age once they brought it back to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff that, that kind of falls out of this. I just can't go down those paths. I mean, I would love to do more digging on that. I would love to do more digging on the Black Rock. Um but for right now, I can't. But if anybody else wants to take those and run with it, man, that would be fun. Get it, guys. All right. So anyway, on the left-hand side of this family tree, this is the main Merovingian king's branch. But you can also see that that um, some of the siblings of the early Romans who became the, the Merovingians immediately bred into the local barbarian tribes as well. I mean, this daughter that we don't have her name married the king of the Visigoths. So they were already, you know, kind of populating the the barbarian tribes. And along this branch over here, um, you end up with the Carolingians, that's Charlemagne's family. But the Carolingians were Merovingians as well, Mm -hmm. same bloodline. Mm -hmm. Also, I think this is a really important thing. I ran into an awful lot of saints coming from these important Merovingian branch families to where I can easily see that it was these families that uh, created and supported the Catholic Church from the very beginning. Mm. So that's my theory. A lot of people would probably want to argue with that, but I don't think it's too hard to argue that a lot of the popes down through the ages came from these important families, too. They just don't know where these important families came from 
And I would argue they were probably Roman to okay. begin with. Okay, so so we have the, the offspring of Constantine, seed point in the Rhine Delta, Belgium. That's the white dragon. You also had the ones up in Britain. And if we just kind of follow that through time, um, one of the first things that happened immediately was that it, I could make a case that the daughter uh, of the three sons of Julian and his wife, Helena, um, the daughter, it looks like she may have immediately married a king of Brittany. So we're seeing the white dragon spread through the continent. And the other, the, the, the main one here, Rishimirs, who was a consul of Rome, remember he's supposed to be a Frank, um, he, he pretty much stayed and became the progenitor of the Merovingians. His brother, Bauto, went off and married into the Eastern Roman emperors in Constantinople. So the bloodline continues through the Byzantine Empire. Essentially, by the time of King Arthur, 150 or so years later, the white dragon has spread throughout the continent. You still have the Byzantine emperors now containing Constantine's blood, but also the Anglo-Saxons had invaded England. They were originally from like the Denmark, northern Germany area on mm. the periphery of what the uh, Roman Empire boundary was. So they had invaded, and immediately the Merovingian daughters married into the Anglo-Saxons. So now you have the white dragon in England also. The red dragon just kind of did its own thing in, in western England and Wales. Now it starts to get interesting. Now is the time of Charlemagne, Charles the Great. And you can see he is building up this big empire here. The Brittany drag, white dragon bloodline was part of it, but the Anglo-Saxons weren't. About this time, probably, I think the white dragon bloodline from Bauto in the Byzantine emperors probably started spreading up into Eastern Europe. So some of the kings up in there, the Slavic kings, uh, obtained the white dragon bloodline. But what makes this era interesting is that right around this time, you start getting the Viking invasions from Scandinavia. And basically at one point, Charlemagne's descendants got sick of the Vikings and made a deal with one of the Vikings, a Viking named Rollo, to settle in northern France and help repel the rest of the Vikings. So now you have – this is where the Normans came from, and they had their own little kingdom in northern France. And, of course, what did they do immediately? Rollo married a descendant of Charlemagne, who was a princess. Eventually, uh, one of the Norman offspring that were carrying the white dragon blood was William the Conqueror. And he invaded England and basically took over all of England. And gave everything in England to his buddies, so it was like a great reset for England at that point in time. And here is a image from the famous Bayou Tapestry, which dates back to just after the Norman Conquest, and is a document 
of the Norman invasion of England. And here you have a Norman warrior fighting an Anglo-Saxon over here. And what's on his shield? A white dragon. Yep. So there is some um, evidence that the white dragon uh, concept, I guess, existed amongst these people. Um, incidentally, there's also uh, evidence that I don't have a slide for. Char Charlemagne, at his time, apparently flew a dragon banner. So we have some continuity from the whole Constantine thing into Charlemagne's time and beyond. So in the aftermath of the, the Norman Conquest, this is about 1200 A.D., um, so 100 years after the Norman Conquest, roughly, you had the white dragon all over Europe. All of these families that were kings of these various entities like Hungary and stuff it, had probably – Can I just tell you something real quick? This is just this – sure. this is a commentary on where we're at as a society. But when I search for Charlemagne in uh, Google Images, all that comes up are pictures of – Charlemagne. Charlemagne the God, right? Yeah, Charlemagne the God. Like, oh yeah. my God. Like, yeah, like there's sad. there's a couple of scattered ones in here, but like nothing historical. And then it ends. There's like maybe 15, 20 pictures here, and that's it. it says you've seen you've seen everything there is to see. Totally ridiculous. Yeah, don't use Google. <laughs> well, no, this is just you know what I do is I, I look in a number of different search engines because I like to compare and contrast the results as they come up. And Google is obviously the worst. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. But but you know, Charlemagne's important to these people. Mm -hmm. All of the nobility of Europe can trace their lineage back through Charlemagne for the most part. Um and then obviously beyond that you get to the Merovingians and then Constantine if you believe what I'm throwing out there. So by this time 1200 AD, the white dragon is everywhere, including the crusades by now. You had the white dragon blood down in the Holy Land. Um, and the Normans had taken over almost all of England with the exception of a little piece of Wales. They, the, this, the red dragon, the Welsh, they had bred into the Irish nobility by this time. So it was almost like they had a little safe haven mm -hmm. off the coast. Everybody um, breeds to the left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every other civilization breeds with the next one over. <laughs> yeah. But you can see that they're kind of getting overwhelmed by the white dragon at this point yes. in time. Yes, yes. And uh, Fredo says – and this is actually something I've thought about. I know, I know some people think that dinosaurs don't exist, but he says, were the dinosaurs really dragons? Read that somewhere on Twitter recently, someone postulating perhaps. I think that that makes a lot of sense. You know, um, you know th w w There is hi historical evidence, physical evidence of dragons. We've also got uh, petroglyphs uh, like at uh, Gobekli Tepe and in other places uh, where humans – have made depictions of what are you know pretty clearly different types of yeah. dinosaurs. Like a stega. I remember the stegosaurus yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, you know, it's it's not inconceivable to me that the dinosaurs you know were just 
a form of life on Earth at a time when we had like a form of gigantism. I mean, we've got stories in the Bible of, you know, of people being giants, but I mean, you know, they're that's depicted as like another race. But what if we've also got people who were living, you know, like uh, uh, um, for, for, you know, centuries. Right. So maybe people were bigger. Maybe we had bigger animals. We had bigger flora, bigger fauna. We had dinosaurs, which people you know, or became, and became this is dragons. The more. This is a more orthodox viewpoint, and you have to expect that a geoscientist would say this, um, that people had found fossils of dinosaurs and yeah. said, oh, there must have been dragons, that kind of thing. That could be – yeah, that could definitely be it too. But but that doesn't uh, explain those petroglyphs which show uh, like fully formed and you know skinned alive animals. You know, I mean, like, I suppose there's the possibility maybe they if there had been like uh, an ice age in a certain place, like, you know, today we might find woolly mammoths in the permafrost in uh, uh, in Russia or in Siberia, rather. Uh, and, you know, maybe that happened and, and they actually saw them as they were coming out of some deep freeze or something. But yeah, I don't know. I, that like, I thing... like the idea that people and dinosaurs walked the earth at the same time. That's just me personally. <laughs> well, you like the Flintstones when you're a kid, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Certainly. Um, yeah, that's that kind of stuff's fascinating. It's a big mystery about what what the civilizations uh, knew, believed, and whatever. When you go back to like the Gobekli Tepe era, mm -hmm. um, and I may have mentioned this before, but the very end, the earliest part of the bloodline that I'm working on, leads you to the exact same area where Gobekli Tepe is. Ah. Look at that. Yeah. Um, the the hard part, and to get from the end of my t bloodline thing to Gobekli Tepe, you've got a missing 5,000 years at least of what the hell was happening that we know nothing about. So paying attention to what they're digging up in that part of the world, um, someday we're going to find out some stuff like, like the whole dinosaur connection and things like that. Oh sure. We just don't we just don't know enough to see how to connect them at this point. Yeah. But yeah. there's a lot of digs going on out there, I think, in the southeast Turkey area. Um they're they've found like maybe fifty other places like Gobekli Tepe that date to around the same age. Oh wow. Why why were those things deliberately buried i mean there's tons of mystery well yeah well here's the thing more about you know i mean I, I i've always wondered you know what if it wasn't that the the gobekli tepe and those other places were deliberately buried but what if you know it's just part of it's because they're so old over time you know i mean it, civilizations are built upon civilizations like when we got to egypt like the pyramids were under under like you know all that sand i mean they had to dig that stuff out and uh, and and like get to and a lot of that stuff, you know, they're still digging up and they're finding different uh, catacombs and stuff like that. Maybe the pyramids weren't under sand, but I believe the Sphinx was. Yeah. 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 So there's still a lot out there to carry back beyond all this stuff I'm doing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, someday we'll get there. I probably won't live long enough to see it, but maybe you guys will. <laughs> we'll do our best. Uh, Fredo also says, and why does the CIA want to resurrect the woolly mammoth? Does that tie into the dinosaur dragon stuff? Such a deep rabbit hole. You know, I've always thought – I mean I'm sure you, many people here have read Jurassic Park, or if you haven't read it, then you've seen the movie. I mean I read it when I was you know, pretty young, and uh, I was fascinated by the idea. I think that people – scientists uh, are just largely obsessed with the idea of playing God in whatever way they can. And uh, people will push the envelope to achieve something just because they have the idea of, you know, pushing uh, scientific knowledge that much further forward. Because if we can bring back a woolly mammoth or if we can uh, replicate the DNA of uh, a creature that's encased in amber and then we can make that live now – I mean, it would be a tremendous scientific feat, and uh, who knows what we might learn, right? Well, uh, and just human curiosity, mm-hmm. how much of us would love to see what a living woolly mammoth looked like? Sure, sure. But you got to remember, all of Crichton's books had very cautionary themes oh, to them. <laughs> absolutely. No, I don't think it's a good idea. I want to go on record. I mean, yeah. it's cool to think about. But, uh, you know, I mean, if the CIA is specifically obsessed with it, then, I mean, I would imagine they would probably be looking for the most nefarious uses they possibly could. Like, bring back the woolly mammoth just enough so that they can get them to breed, and then we've got, like, this super endangered species. They make a preserve, and then gradually they keep making it larger and larger and larger, and then they got to start killing us off, basically, so that they can survive. Yeah, you could, yeah. You could definitely see that trend <laughs> mm-hmm. being reasonable. Certainly. Okay, so I can skip this. I had this second version of the bloodline in here just to kind of remind myself, but I think we covered it enough. Okay. All right, so this is this is where we get into the family mm-hmm. that I'm focused on. And it all comes back to finding this coat of arms. That's where it started. And it was very unusual. All the coat of arms I've seen since then are very different than this one. Um, this one has a black background. With the three deer heads, like we saw in the Rothschild photo, three Ys, six six six. The Y is the Phine- the sixth letter of the Phoenician alphabet, which I think there's good evidence that it is. Plus, it's topped with a serpent. I haven't run across any other coats of arms that are topped with a serpent. I've run across a couple old versions, in particular, that are topped with a phoenix. Um, which is interesting of itself, but if you think about this sort of Egyptian mythology in a hierarchy, um, is this set, the god set, the mm-hmm. Egyptian god set, which is the inspiration for Satan probably? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a slide where I go into some of the details of that and how it re- might relate to the Hyksos pharaohs in Egypt who were from Canaan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I left it out in the interest of time, but you can probably see the relationship just from describing it. Um, you know, there was a Hyksos pharaoh called Apophis, which is another name for um, the big snake in Egyptian mythology mm. that Ra had to fight with every night. Mm. And that became associated with Set 
later on once they kicked the Hyksos out of Egypt. So there's all this connection to the serpent. It's there. The other um, coats of arms that I mentioned that have the phoenix on top, you can see there might be a relationship of who with this, this figure on top of a coat of arms might be who do who does this family answer to? Mm-hmm. And in, so I would in perpetuity as well because you've got the infinity symbolism. Yeah, exactly. They certainly are very interested in immortality mm-hmm. as we know. Yes. Um, it's part of the whole elitism concept that they seem to believe in. Mm-hmm. There's two ways that I know of that you can achieve immortality in their world. One is the bloodline. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence that this particular family has something like seven um, of the top member of each generation named William. Seven in a row. It's almost like cloning yourself, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's a form of immortality. The other one, and this ties into Hollywood, is fame. Yes. Your deeds through the all of history, your fame, um, that le- that's a, a way of achieving immortality. Sorry, I'm getting a phone call. <laughs> no problem. Um, he should know that I'm on a show. <laughs> this is my buddy who's sort of newly woken up, and he doesn't have anybody else to talk to about this stuff. He's like, so he literally explain it to me. <laughs> yeah, he literally calls me every night, and he's kind of an expert on Ukraine. So okay, you know, it's not it's a two way street, definitely. Right on. Uh, um, Fredo also says maybe Afghanistan is funding the woolly mammoth so they can sodomize. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> We have a we have a twisted audience, don't we? We do, we do. Fredo is our uh, resident comedian, a always always co- uh, comic relief. Uh, and then also, Filter Dog One over on Pilled says, "Do you remember Joshua and Caleb, who came back from spying the Promised Land? They reported giants and big food. Yes, yes, that's one of the things I was making reference to earlier." Yeah, I don't get too much into the Giants thing. I, I have my own theory on where it might come from. Okay. And that is if you look at all of the, like, carvings that they made on walls in those ancient civilizations, the king or king of kings and the pharaohs were all much bigger than everybody else except the gods yeah. in those those images. So my operating theory is that these guys, these families might consider themselves the giants among men. Oh, certainly. I, yeah. And I, I think would... I think the whole thing with the Nephilim having how many fingers might play into that as well. Yeah. Remember how many fingers they have? Don't they all have six fingers? They all have six fingers. Yeah. And yeah. I already showed how important the number six is to these people. Oh, so it's almost I... like a calling card. <laughs> Yeah. So think about think about George Bush in that painting where he's throwing the paper airplane. Yep. He has six fingers. I think the 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 uh, Bill Clinton one, six fingers. And everybody's oh, like, oh, really? I did not. Nephilim. I didn't notice that on the Bill Clinton one. Hold on, I got to pull this up now. The, the one with the dress. Yes. With, where he's they're, pointing bo- at. they're both by the same artist. So if, right. Yeah, that would make right. sense. Let me see. Bill Clinton dress painting. 
You want me to stop sharing for this? Uh, yeah, hold on. Let me um, let me get it pulled up over here. Ah, this is a, a wonderful website. True perverts who run the world. <laughs> Go ahead and stop. Good title. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay, and uh, what we'll do here? Let me make this big, and and then we will. Okay, so. Stop participants sharing and share my screen. There we go. True perverts of the world. Ah, okay. And we'll need to go to that, and then I need to set it for the audience so they can see it. Um, where the heck? Um. Google Chrome, true perverts of the world. There we go. All right. Sorry for this, guys. Uh, for some reason, every time I uh, reboot my computer, I have to reset everything, and it's a little frustrating. But we're almost there. We're almost there. Okay. There we go. Okay. So you can see, you can see this duppy, correct? I can see Clinton and Epstein together. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Because here is Bill Clinton in a dress. Okay, and I you have to zoom in on his hand. Yeah, you're right. One, two, three, four, five, six, and then of course you can only yeah. see it on that one. Wow, I never noticed that before. There were there were a bunch of digs about that back in the day. Um, yeah, they spotted it on Bush's hand in the paper airplane one. Um. I don't know. I don't remember if they ever spotted it in the Obama and the Bushes thing. That was a different artist, but that would be even more fascinating if it was done. Hold on. I remember there were so many things about the Obama presidential painting. Let's check. I'm, here we go. Okay, one, two, three, four. Oh yeah, it was on this one too. Look at his uh, the hand on the left. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, See the extra finger. I yeah. mean, they don't show the thumb, but he's definitely got a finger that shouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah, it's like underneath the hand. Yeah, yeah, because he, yeah, he's um, there we go. It's like he's tucking it under. Right. Okay, so now let's find the bush. Bush. Airplane Oval Office Painting. Okay. There we are. And, okay, there's the Clinton one again. One, the two, three. The hand on his shoe, yeah. Yeah, one, two, three, four. No, that's only, that one's only got five. One, two, three, Can you zoom in four, more? five. No, unfortunately, this is as far as it will allow me to go. And this one is only four that we can see. I, I remember somebody digging on this one really carefully, and they spotted somehow six fingers on this one. Let me see. On the, on the hand on his shoe. Let me see if I can get a better version of it.
Yeah, that's as deep as I can go on this one too. Yeah, I'm only seeing four. Yeah, of them. that does that does look like only five. I don't know that. Yeah, it, it, it might be subtle enough that. Oh no no you know what? Uh, this hand that he's got the paper airplane in. It's like it kind of looks like there's one more finger tucked behind this finger right here. I think that I mean I actually I mean because that's not like where the thumb would go. The thumb wouldn't be visible. It would be on the other side of the paper airplane. I think that's where it is. One, two, three, four. No, no, no. That's that's still five. <laughs> yeah. I remember it being on the one on the shoe, but yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Well, but anyway, the, the, the concept is that the number six appears to be a calling card of theirs. Yes. Just like um, – You've heard the term aces and eights before, right? Yes, yes. It's like a it's like a, a blackjack hand, and uh, supposedly Wild Bill Hickok died with that hand, mm -hmm. and it's also called the dead man's hand, mm -hmm. and from the Hickok story. Yep, yep. Um, and, and this this one guy that writes papers has been pretty influential on my work. He talks about another calling card of the cabal is aces and eights when they write articles or uh, about false flag events and things like that and uh, basically dates and things in it have ones and eights in them a lot. And he hmm. points that out as being, ah, that's a calling card of the cabal. And I, and I was like, yeah, okay, I don't know what it means, but yeah, I could see the point he's making until the other day. Um, how much did did they evaluate Mar-a-Lago for being worth $18 million when right. it's sitting on, what, 20 acres or something like that, maybe right. more? And the average home in that area is valued at $40 million sitting on, like, less than three-quarters of an acre. So right. freaking ridiculous. This this is not going to stand. But, but, <laughs> but 18 is aces and eights, isn't it? It is. Yes. And 18 is also... 666. Six, six. <laughs> That's right. 6 mm -hmm. plus 6 plus 6. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I, I think they do they do, do a lot of signaling in this stuff. I agree. Um, I agree. It's part of this... Um, uh, you know, We've talked about this on the show a number of times. There has to be this uh, tacit approval that the public gives to the deep state and the elites for the actions that they are planning. Uh, they, they don't tell us directly... But they signal right. exactly what their plans are. It's like on 9-11, uh, George W. Bush sitting in that classroom with those children reading that book with those very specific words like uh, plane, kite, hit, steal, must. Uh, there was, it may, may have been one or other uh, ones in there yeah. as well. But, and, um, and remember, I started this all off with uh, decoding what Y might be. Yes. Sixth letter. Yep. And, you know, that – all over the place. I showed the one example of the yeah, yeah, yeahs, that band, right? Uh -huh. So it's everywhere, and we haven't even begun to look for all the times they're playing around with why, right? <laughs> so yep. there's a ton more out there that we just haven't spotted, I'm sure. All right, let me get back to sharing. Okay, go for it. Um, also, yeah, Patriot714, that, that was me clicking on the image. For for whatever reason, I wouldn't let me go any any further in. But we'll uh, we'll see if we can't get like a 
more zoomed in version of the picture and I can post it on Telegram later. All right, so back to the stags. Yeah, back to the why, 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 mm-hmm. and the serpent. I talked about that yep. enough, I think, yep. that you can get an idea that it might be who who do they answer to, who rules over them. And, you know, is this family, if they're ruled by Set or Satan mm-hmm. or this, whatever you want to call the snake, I, I made the case when I was talking about Baal that the phoenix might be a representation of the pharaoh or the Nimrod or the Baal or whatever you want to call it, the God on Earth concept. You know, pharaohs were considered gods on Earth. Um, so if the phoenix is also a representation of that person or family, then these other families like the Stanleys and the Howards, who are very high-level British nobility, having phoenixes on top of their coat of arms. Are they the lieutenants of this family? Do you see that hierarchy there? Mm-hmm. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that was yeah. clear. All yeah. right. So what about the Latin motto on this coat of arms? Covendo tutus. What does that mean? Well, if you translate it, it means safety through precaution. Mm. Not exactly the most chivalrous kind of motto, like, you know, we kick everybody's ass or something like that. This is kind of a hide in the background yeah. kind yeah. of motto, right? Mm-hmm. And how many times have we been told or discussed that, oh, these people, they're back in the shadows. We're not supposed to recognize them, that kind of thing. So I translate that motto twisting around a little bit, saying that it means safety through discretion. That could be. All right. Uh, Real quick, uh, Fredo says, if 18 means life in Hebrew and 13 represents Jesus and the 12 disciples, are they making good numbers bad numbers? Good question. All right, so now we get to look at this family. Mm. These are – this is the Cavendish family, which – Stately manor. Yeah. Incidentally, how many times have we seen various lists of – the quote-unquote 13 families, right? Mm-hmm. He booted the Rumble stream. So can you tell me uh, – hold on. Refresh. Tell me five by five. Okay. It's back. Okay. Yeah, I, 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 I am definitely being messed with. I don't know what the deal is, but I think I found a workaround. I, I, can, I can individually oh, – now. okay. So I can turn off the Rumble stream and then turn it back on while allowing all of the other streams – to continue. So, okay, go go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you you remember who supposedly is the majority shareholder of Rumble now, right? Uh, it's like BlackRock and Vanguard, isn't yeah. it? If I'm not mistaken. They didn't, they didn't yeah. like us talking about them, did no, they? No, they certainly <laughs> didn't. Yeah. Uh, Larry, if okay. you're out there. <laughs> so this is the main house for the Cavendish family. They are also known as the Dukes of Devonshire. Which, incidentally, they don't really seem to have had much to do with Devonshire historically. Hmm. They just chose that title for some reason. But what's of interest is that in 1000 BC, the Phoenicians were mining tin in Devonshire, down in the southwest part of England. Hmm. So it could be an homage to that, but it's really of the dissolution of the monasteries. 
main house has five floors. It's approximately 81,000 square feet. It has 126 rooms. This is a hotel, folks. Man, 81,000 square feet. Yeah. Uh, on, on the total grounds itself, um, there's 300 total rooms. So they have other buildings, obviously. Um the matriarch of this family, the widow of the William Cavendish I was just talking about. Remember, there's like seven of them in a row. This is the first one. Um, she was in charge for a while of Mary, Queen of Scots, who Queen Elizabeth I was very afraid of because of her bloodline, potential bloodline claim to the throne. So for a couple of years, Mary, Queen of Scots, was imprisoned here by Queen Elizabeth, and she became good buddies with the matriarch. They did a whole bunch of tapestry stuff together, and that stuff still exists. Um, but obviously this is sort of a bloodline connection to the royalty. Um, that This house is often used for TV and movies as a set. Um, some Pretty famous movies that it were used for were Pride and Prejudice and Barry Lyndon. Zach, do you remember who directed Barry Lyndon? I do. And that was uh, the one and only um, – God, what is his name? He directed <laughs> uh, Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick, yes. That's right. It was yes. Stanley Kubrick. So this is the second time we've run across him. The first time was the opening scene of 2001 mm -hmm. with the mace. Which is where the Y came from. Yep, yep. In the present day, uh, it's obviously it's in a trust for tax purposes, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And the actual family operates it as a tourist destination. Uh, their grounds are pretty impressive, and they get a lot of tourists every year. It has a $5 million annual operating cost. And, yeah. Owned it well, owned through the trust and occupied by the current Duke of Devonshire. Now I'm going to show some of the stuff. Ooh, this is on the be property. Beautiful, beautiful. I can yeah. already tell. Uh, Fredo also says attacks on Rumble in general. In my opinion, Bongino hit a hundred thousand live today. They don't like that exposure to truth. Well, don't worry. Sneeko is currently sitting at fifty-three thousand live viewers, so there's still time for humanity to take its worst possible version. But Continuing. All right. So these are just some views of the interior of the house, and you can tell it's extremely ornate. Um, in fact, they – about 20 years ago, I think, they did a big refurbishing job on the house and property that supposedly cost upwards of a couple of hundred million dollars. You know how they financed that? How How so? They went up in the attic and grabbed a couple of old paintings and sold them. Are you kidding? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I believe it. I mean, just every single surface is a work of art. <clears throat> exactly. And, uh, yeah, God, imagine retrofitting this place with, uh, you know, plumbing and electricity. <laughs> Must yeah. have been a hell of a And, feat. you know, <laughs> most of these murals and paintings date back to, like, 1700 or earlier yeah yeah wow. so this first one i've got here this is their 
sort of, they call it a chapel, mm-hmm. chapel altarpiece. This was built in 1693, which is a very important period in history for this family, as I'll show later. Um, but, I mean, does this look like a Christian? Does this look Christian to you in any way? No, no. No, it doesn't. I mean, you know, right at the apex is the sun. Mm-hmm. Sun worship is very important to these guys. Remember, the black stone mm-hmm. fell as a meteorite originally, they think. So it could be a piece of the heavens, a piece of the sun. Um, as And, you know, there's all kinds of references to sun worship and all of this stuff, but... Who Bottom is, line who, is, is who's this, the, the golden man standing there, and what is he with? Uh, God, I haven't been asked that question since I've made these presentations, okay, and okay. I think I think when I put these slides together, I knew the answer to that, but I have to admit that I've forgotten. I'll, I'll see if I can. It's okay. It's okay. Ch- what is it called? Chapel altar piece. Chatsworth uh, House. Chatsworth House. Okay, let's take a look. All right, and I found a very similar picture. See, open, link in a new tab. Okay. And for the, and for those of you familiar with Los Angeles area, mm-hmm. like myself, there's a town there called Chatsworth. You... <laughs> This this is this is a a a flayed man. Oh my God! Hold on. Let me yeah, it's, let me yeah, share it's this. Nuts. Hold on. Uh, left. Okay. So let me show that, and then let me show you this. This is this is wild. Um. Okay. There you go. All right. Take a look. I mean, this is this is a man who's had his. Skin removed. Uh, I, I can't remember what they call it, but um, yeah, I mean, look, he's got like his muscles are exposed. Uh, you can see the let me see the muscles on his face. You can see, you yeah. know, all of the muscles. That is crazy. Like, and yeah. that's part of the altar. That definitely does not seem too Christian. <laughs> no, not at all. And what is he now? Holding? A lot of. Now this piece of art is is modern. Yes. They have they have in the last like 40 years they've had a lot of modern art exhibits mm-hmm. on this property which is odd. I mean, modern art is odd to begin with, but Yes. which is odd in that everything else about the stuff, the legacy stuff is all classical. Sure. And they've been putting all this crazy modern art on it like the last 50 years. Is there is there like a, like a history of medicine in this family? Like in recent years, have they been pioneers of medicine? Because uh, I mean, I'm just I'm I'm thinking about you know this gross anatomy, and then he has something in his hand that you know I mean if I got a better look at it, I might be able to tell you what it is. But it kind of looks like it might be a scalpel, which would make sense. And that's actually – that's his skin that's draped over his arm now that I'm looking at it more. Ooh, you can, you can I didn't see the, know that. Yeah, that's you can, gross. <laughs> you can see the ear right there. That's obviously his head. There's yeah, his I think eye. you're right. Wow. Oh, yes, because there's his hand and then his legs and his feet. Holy jeez. I think that's probably a scalpel. I'm wondering – yeah, I'm wondering if this – you know, if this isn't just some really strange piece of modern art, if there isn't uh, – some medical association with I, it. 
I haven't run across any medical association with these people, but I can tell you something that may link up. Okay. And I have it in a slide a little further, but I'll go ahead and give it away oh, now. Okay. And you can thank Anka Vanka for finding this. The premier scientific lab of the 19th and and probably first half of the 20th century at Oxford University is called the Cavendish Labs. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that track. It's, na it's named after. Henry Cavendish, who wasn't a duke, but he was like a brother of a duke or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, he was a famous scientist. He he figured out in an indirect way what the Earth weighed and stuff like that. Um, but he's a you know if you're a scientist, his name is pretty prominent. Um, it was named for him, but it was probably funded by his descendants. You know, like a hundred years later or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that's a Cavendish lab, and what Anka Vanka re reminded me of—I don't even know if I realized it at the time—but DNA was discovered there. That's where Rotson and Crick were working. Wild, they, you know, discovered the double helix and all that stuff. So, yeah, you could you could say that they have an interest in human biology, I guess. Yeah, for that very regard. Yeah. That that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, also, Freight Awakening says, this is a great show, guys. Uh, supporting as much as I can tonight and tomorrow. My company announced that they will be laying off 5% by mid-October. I hope I'm not one of them praying. I, I, oh, bummer. Dude, I, I'm so sorry to hear that, and we'll definitely be praying for you as well. Um, and not to, to minimize that, but I also wanted to let everybody know that uh, in case you didn't know, Matt Couch uh, recently had one of his legs amputated because he had blood clots in them, not because he was taking the jab or anything like that. Uh, this was a, a health condition related, you know, completely to something different. But his leg has healed, and he's now in the process of raising money to get a prosthetic, and it's going to be like $20,000. So he's got a give, send, go, and uh, I have uh, shared it out on my Twitter, and I wanted to make sure that I shared it here tonight. I know that every, it's everybody's in a difficult spot, you know. I mean, this is uh, so much, dude. All right, you ready for me to share let's, again? Yeah, let's do it. Go ahead. Get share okay. screen. Okay, so just uh, these hold, other two. Are... Hold, hold on. It says we're frozen again. <laughs> Once, yes, restarting stream. Okay. Uh, oh, <laughs> they said we came back and I turned it off. Uh, refresh. <laughs> okay, let me uh, check over here on my monitor. And I think we should be good. Okay, we're back, they say. All right, I'm sorry. Please continue, Debbie. Okay. Uh, so anyway, these are just a couple... You know, the chapel's the one that to, that's really the conversation image on this slide, but yeah. just two other examples of how ornate the interior is mm -hmm. of this house. I mean, okay, this, this, this rivals Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's even more garish. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's here's some images of the actual artwork. Mm. Itself, and there's a there. There's a. It's all pagan. Mm -hmm. All of it is pagan. Um, this is a ceiling painting here on on the left, 
and it's called The Return of the Golden Age, mm. and it's in parentheses, Assembly of the Gods. It yes. was painted in 1691 to 1692. I think it was painted on the roof of of one of the – what they call the Great Chamber in the house. Looks like it might be and like a fresco or something. Yeah, and, and and essentially the the centerpiece of this is the Roman version of the mother goddess, uh, Sibylle. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but she's basically the equivalent of Isis. You know, these pagan religions, when they cross cultural barriers, there's a, a they basically just said, oh yeah, well your your religion's okay with us uh, you know your your god simile is the same as isis so mm-hmm. it's all good right? yep yep uh and so you know basically this is just uh, pagan gods at, at the top of the great staircase is another painting by the same um same artist and it was painted about the same time and again it was painted during this important period for the family where I think they achieved supreme importance. And I'll get into that later. But um, again, it, this one's called The Triumph of Sibylle. So um, I, the Isis figure is very important mm-hmm. to them, I would say. I mean, it's virtually the same scene, too. Yeah, it's pretty close. I, yeah. You know, if you were to really dissect it, there are some differences. Oh, and, cer- you know, certainly, yeah. Art historians, scholars could probably spend a week talking about the significance of the differences, but yeah. I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, here's another painting of Julius Caesar sacrificing um, before going to the Senate. Same same time frame. Um a different artist this time, but you know, again, it's just, it's a pagan image. Mm-hmm. If I blew this up, which I guess I can do, you can see that what he's about to sacrifice is a bull. Yeah, you can see the bull right here. So common sacrifice. Oh, look, I guess. he's got a ram too, or a, a sheep. Where's that? Just to the lower to the left. Oh, uh, well, no, b- below the below the the bull. Oh yeah, you're right, right yeah. there. Yep. I didn't I never spotted that, but yeah, kind of same theme of paganism. Now, Certainly. here's where we get to remember the beginning of the first show and I was kind of laughing at the random choice of the coat of arms that you chose for the show, mm-hmm. having that motto et in Arcadia ergo. Mhm. And how that being linked to a very mysterious and significant painting that I have seen digs where people have dissected it with like golden rule and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. That was painted by Nicholas Poussin in the early 1600s, and it's called The Arcadian Shepherds. In Arcadia, ego means… Um, in Arcadia, I once was, or something like that. And Arcadia is a early Greek um, area that, for some reason, it's been viewed as a a utopia in the past by classical artists. And 
What I'm fascinated with is that there's a theme of shepherds running through all of this. Remember, the Hyksos were known as the shepherd kings. Um, but what's interesting is that the version that I showed last show is the second version of that painting. Ten years earlier, Poussin uh, made an earlier version of it, and this is it. And the Cavendishes own that painting. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Um, I don't know what, what to make of it other than the shepherd connection at this point, mm -hmm. but there's probably more in there. Um, I've also figured out who that statue is. Uh, that's St. Bartholomew, and it's entitled Exquisite Pain. It's by Damien Hurst, who, if I'm not mistaken, is the guy who made the very controversial piece known as Piss Christ. He took a crucifix. Oh, my God. Took a crucifix I know that. and submerged it in a vat of human urine, and it was on – yeah, it was on display in New York, and it, a lot of people were very angry. As I remember be. reading an article about Piss Christ yep. like a couple of months ago. Yep. It somehow got back in the news again, but oh, God. to make that connection with the same artist, like this, could yeah. this get more creepy? Yeah. Zach, so, I I'm, think it can. And I, I know that St. Bartholomew was martyred. Uh, I'm wondering if – they flayed was he him. Flayed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, that would make a lot of sense. <clears throat> but um, yeah, that's crazy. And then also, thank you to Fredo who says, uh, it dropped twenty dollars and said, Matt Couch Fund. Some problems are bigger than others. Prayers for Matt, that poor man. Thank you so much, dude. I really uh, appreciate it. I'll make sure that that gets over to him for sure. And then I also, I should, I should. There, there's been a, a number of donations on Pilled as well, and I, I should say that uh, you, you guys on Pilled uh, are always supporting the show, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, Filterdog One said, "How many square feet is Mar-a-Lago?" You know, I just read it a couple of days ago. I mean, I want to say it's like, uh, like tens of thousands of square feet, maybe twenty thousand square feet total. I'll look that up here in a moment. Uh, and then Nakaz says, awesome content again. Maybe there needs to be a part three. LOL, I will need to watch this one from the beginning. Yes, I think actually there definitely will be a part three. And then uh, World Debt Now says, outstanding. Appreciate you. FilterDog1 says, this is a good time to let people know they have an option with Pilled.net. Yes, and uh, I will say that uh, with the issues that Rumble is having, you guys should really make sure you're also subscribed to me on my uh, Foxhole channel at Pilled.net. Uh, Debbie, if you wouldn't mind doing me a favor and dropping the link to the Pilled channel over there, uh, I, what I would recommend doing is having one window with the Pilled channel and then one window with Rumble. That way, if anything goes wrong with either of them, you can go back and forth. And then there's also Getter, which has also uh, been very, very stable for quite a while. Uh, and Eleanor, 2000, thank you so much. She says, praying for Matt. Thank you for sharing with us, Zach, and praying for you, Fredo, and matching the gift. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate that. Um, uh, Lil Galaxy also says, Bartholomew served as a missionary to Ethiopia, Mesopotamia, Parthia in modern Iran, uh, Lycon Laconia, which is in modern Turkey, and Armenia. Wow, Mar-a-Lago is 62,500 square feet. 
which is wow. Oh man, that's outstanding. Is, it, that, is that multiple buildings on the property? Uh, though? You know, all it, it, together. It, it likely is. I, I would imagine. I mean, with you know how large the property is, there's certainly a number of outbuildings, yeah. and then because it's uh, it's a club, it's not necessarily as specifically or, or exclusively a private residence. There, there's got to be additional buildings. Um, and then uh, Noreen says, matching Fredo for Matt. Thank you, so, thank you so much. Really appreciate that, Noreen. And then Mech1164 says, yes, Zach, he was flayed. So Damien Hurst's gilded sculpture makes sense, but it doesn't make it any less uh, unsettling. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, just wait. There's more. <laughs> <laughs> okay, continue, continue. I'm sorry to keep All interrupting. Right. <laughs> All right, so uh, this is some views of the outside. On property, what's Ooh. on the grounds, and yeah. the, the I was, main attraction. <laughs> as soon as I saw it, I was going to say, wow, that looks a lot like, and then I looked yeah. up and see you've already got it referenced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think this thing is called the Cascade House. They, they, you know, remember this is a tourist attraction now, and, and these artificial step waterfalls here are called the Cascade. So this is the Cascade House. Um. I have no idea what they used it for, but obviously it looks an awful lot like Epstein's Little Temple, which yes. is pretty disturbing. Also, this was built in 1703, um, right? Mm -hmm. After, just as the – well, the, the East India Company had been around for 100 years by then. So um, they had probably built up a sizable amount of money. Oh, yes. Nice also, of note, if, if you count the uh, steps in the cascade, there are 24. And okay. if you count the stripes on the building, there's nine. Mm -hmm. And you, that adds up to 33 when you get to the cupola of uh. this building, which is what? The primordial mound. In fact, all of the cupolas on churches and stuff have been um, – hypothesized to be a representation of the Egyptian primordial mound. That's how pervasive this Egyptian creation myth is through everything. Mm -hmm. So 33 steps to get to God status, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Absolutely. Also outside you have this other – Greek temple called Flora's Temple, so more references to paganism, ties into those paintings probably. But also you have a hedge maze. Where, where, where are we familiar with the a shining. hedge maze? The, the shining. shining, of course, a Stanley Kubrick movie. Yep. yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, he used this house for – filming scenes from Barry Lyndon about seven or eight years before. Oh, yes. So he knew of this thing. Um, and also, an interesting bit of trivia, there's no hedge maze in Stephen King's book, The Shining. No, there Kubrick isn't. Kubrick there isn't. added that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it also reminds me of uh, the, the legend of the Minotaur as well, because there was a, a, right. a maze in the Minotaur that where right. he had to go fight the Minotaur. There was also a maze that I've read about in ancient Egypt that predates any of that. I forget what its function was or its function is still being debated. One last thing. They have what they call a hunting tower 
on the property that dates back very early to 1580, and the thing is massive. And I keep thinking, why would you need a deer blind like that? And, of course, that raises questions about, quote-unquote, hunting parties and things like that. I don't know what to make of it. It's just weird in my book. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just don't know enough to understand, but, um, (laughs) yeah, it's weird. Okay, so here's a, a... a quick background, and one of my favorite slides to talk about because there's a you-can't-make-this-shit-up moment in it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of a, a breakdown of the patriarchs of, of that branch of the Cavendish family, the dukes and earls and stuff like that of Devonshire. So they came they're, – they're purported – Oldest ancestor is this guy, Robert Gernon, who is on the the um, bloodline slide. Gernon means mustache. He came over with William the Conqueror. But more important than that, they say he, he was a uh, cousin, a close cousin of William the Conqueror's, which means that he was of the Norman nobility, which – as I showed, can be traced back to Charlemagne and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But they never, they never, um, they never say exactly how he was related to William the Conqueror. I never found it anywhere, but I might have worked it out. It only took me a year, but I might have worked it out. William the Conqueror's father um, was Duke Robert. And remember, William was a bastard. Mm-hmm. Well, Robert had an older brother named Richard, who was the rightful Duke of Normandy. But they say that Robert killed him, assassinated him somehow. They think he might have been poisoned or something like that. And that's how Robert became the Duke, and that's how William eventually became the Duke as well. Um, But Richard, the older brother, had a couple of illegitimate kids before he was killed. Don't they always? One, one of them was a daughter. She married into a nor- noble family in Normandy, and their offspring became the most powerful line of this family in Normandy and subsequently in England. So obviously they were highly regarded and highly re- important. Um, William, despite the fact that her husband died in a rebellion against William the Conqueror. Hmm. So it makes you wonder, like, what the hell is going on? You would think that if this guy led a revolution against William, William would hate his whole family. Mm-hmm. But no, they were honored. How much of this kind of these kind of stories are real? Well, apparently he died. And I think she remarried into the Gernon family mm-hmm. in Normandy, who were already barons, barons of Montfiquet, because she was only 26 years old when her husband died. Because some of her offspring, there's references to Montfiquet. So I think that um, she remarried into this Gernon family. And remember, she was um, – a cousin. She was a cousin of William the Conqueror's, and so she had more kids after she remarried into this Montfiquet branch, and they are the ones that 
became this particular family that I'm highlighting on the Dukes of Devonshire. Okay, Does that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody had figured that out before, and that was pretty gratifying because I'd kind of stressed over it for a year. Like, damn it, I know they're cousins, but can't we do better? Mm-hmm. I think we might have gotten it. Uh, also, Freight Awakening says thank you to Eleanor and Noreen, and thank you Zach and Duppy for the great content. Uh, yeah, mostly thanks to Duppy. I uh, I am I am just a conduit. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope that this stuff resonates because you remember the the whole idea of this exercise was: do we really know who? The enemy is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I was never confident that the Pazer story held enough water. No, no, to be confident about it. So this is an alternative to that that I think has a little bit better sauce to it. Absolutely, you know. And I've said for a long time. I mean, people uh, have, have always asked, you know, who is it really that we're fighting against? I mean, who is running things at the top of this pyramid? And you know, I've, I've, it's always made sense to me that whoever that family was, they would want to stay as low profile as possible. Of course, they must have power. They must have wealth. Uh, but they and they must be, have the bloodline, and they must have the bloodline. Yes, exactly. Right. And you've got all three right here. Yep. Um, also, uh, Fredo, or excuse me, Cranop. I'm sorry. Says this is for you, my friend. Keep up the good fight. I have Matt's gifts and go tagged. Okay, thank you so much, man. Really, really appreciate it. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to go over some of this really quick here. The, okay. the next uh, in the Gurnan family line. Remember. Alex of Normandy, the illegitimate princess, probably married into this line. Um, The first one of note was a – I mean obviously they were big estate holders because Robert de Gurnan, the the first one of the Gurnans, um, the son, I think, of Alex of Normandy, uh, he was was there for the Norman Conquest – he was a cousin of William the Conqueror's. He was rewarded with a ton of land and estates because remember the Normans took over everything, literally everything in England. It was a, it was a great reset kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And as a relative of William the Conqueror's, he was given a lot of land and stuff, including land that's now right in the heart of London. So they weren't. They weren't poor by any means. They just weren't all that powerful, but their power built. But they did have the bloodline. So the first one of note is this guy, Ralph de Gurnan, uh, about 1280, so 100 years after the Norman invasion. He was the sheriff of Dorset. The first one that really gets them on the map is Sir John Cavendish. Um, He was – you know, his heyday was circa 1370. He was the chief justice of the king's bench, which is essentially like the chief justice of the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. right? And he was killed in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. He was actually be- publicly beheaded. Wow. So you can see where these people might hate the peasants to this day. Certainly. <laughs> so, so now they're really on the map as far as the hierarchy of – uh, the English nobility. Next one is the guy I mentioned earlier, Sir William Cavendish, who was Lord Treasurer for Henry VIII, and you know he profited mightily 
from the dissolution of the monasteries. And he married a woman named Bess of Hardwick, who I've traced her bloodline. She was a cousin through the Talbot uh, family line, which was another important Norman family. And we'll see the name Talbot come up uh, a little while later. I would say that the Talbots may be the second most important family after these guys. And lo and behold, they're related. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the next guy of note that I have here, and I'll go into him in a little bit more detail, was Bess of Hardwick's son. Uh, his He was William Cavendish also. He was the one that was probably one of the primary, if not the primary, initial investor in the East India Company. Okay. He's also the one that first hired Thomas Hobbes, the author who wrote a book called Leviathan. I'll get into him a little bit later. This is the famous cover of the book Leviathan, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Thomas Hobbes was a tutor for four generations of the Cavendishes. But he was also a philosopher, and he wrote this book, which I think might be the uh, philosophical blueprint for the New World Order. I'll get into that more okay. later. So anyway, you know, the big thing here is that he invested, quote-unquote, very heavily and very successfully in the East India Company right at the beginning. He also invested in the Virginia Company. Um Incidentally, his mother, Bess of Hardwick, uh, be- shortly before this, was considered the second wealthiest woman in England after Queen Elizabeth I. Mm-hmm. So serious money in this family even before the East India Company. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Okay. The great-grandson of this William Cavendish, another William Cavendish, became the first duke. Um, so, oh, and incidentally, incidentally, this this guy uh, bought his earlship from the crown for ten thousand pounds in sixteen eighteen dollars or pounds. Can imagine what that would be like now, right? Mm-hmm. This duke was extremely important because he was a major player in the glorious revolution of sixteen eighty eight. Whoa. Hold on. Some we must we must have said something close to Siri because she suddenly started going off. <laughs> Lovely. I don't know how that happened. Okay, continue. <laughs> so I can't emphasize enough how important I think this glorious revolution of 1688 probably was, and I will explain on my slide devoted to this first duke why that might be. But in a nutshell. That is when William and Mary came over from the Netherlands to rule England okay. as king and queen. After that, you have a series of dukes, a number of them named William, of course, because remember the whole cloning immortality thing. Yes. Um, they were all very heavily involved in the British government. Uh, this guy was first lord of the treasury and prime minister. That would be the fourth duke. Fifth duke is mostly known for marrying Lady Georgiana Spencer, who is hailed to this day as an early 
feminist icon. Mm. I guess she had a little independent streak in her. There's a whole movie made about her that starred um, – oh, God, I keep forgetting her name. The girl that was in Pirates of the Caribbean uh, starred her. Yes, yes. Uh, I can see her in my mind. Kira, but I, Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley. There you go. Kira Knightley. Yeah. That's her. Yeah. And uh, – you know who played her husband, the Duke, in that movie? Mm, who? An actor named Rafe Fiennes. Oh, I know Rafe Fiennes. Yes, yes. He played Voldemort. Yes, yes. Um, in doing the Bill Clinton family tree, Bill Clinton is related to Rafe Fiennes. Oh, no doubt. Okay. Just so one of those coincidences, yeah. right? So Bill Clinton is a Cavendish. <laughs> well, not necessarily. M- many times removed. I didn't find a direct link to the Cavendishes, I don't think, with his family tree. Okay. But that doesn't mean that they're not serious players in the nobility. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And uh, Brooklyn also says Spencer. Diana was a Spencer. That's right. And Winston Winston Spencer Churchill. Spencers are a very, very important nobility family as well. So it's not a surprise that this Duke married a Spencer, really. Okay, now we get to the fun part. The sixth Duke, William Cavendish, he was Lord Chamberlain in the British government. And he is known today for being the person who the Cavendish banana is named after. The Cavendish banana is the variety of banana that you see when you go into the grocery store. That's right. In the early part of the 20th century, it replaced an earlier dominant version of the commercial banana. That earlier version was called the Gros Michel. Hmm. How's your French, Zach? Gros Michel, like that? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, uh, I've got uh, ice cream bananas in my yard. I think they are, maybe they're also called blue javas, but um, I, uh, I... It's Big Mike. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This is one of those oh you can't make god. this shit up moments. <laughs> oh my god, big Mike bananas. <laughs> and oh. if you go into Wikipedia right now and you type in Gross Michelle, you'll see it. <laughs> Gross Michelle. I know you can't. I knew you couldn't resist this whole I, exercise. Yeah, yeah, okay. There we go. Um no, it's gross. Not. Gross is with one S, oh, and Michelle is M I C H E L. And is it G R O S E or just G R O S? G R O S. Michelle, gross Michelle. Uh, yeah, also known as Big Mike. <laughs> 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 so funny. Oh, <laughs> cultivar of banana. Oh man, I, I gotta I gotta see if we can grow some gross Michelle bananas. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know what? Actually, I'm I'm looking at um, uh, a picture here. I might as well make this big so everybody can see it. I think these are – yeah, these are Gross Michelle bananas that you can find. Uh, apparently, they grow in um, Costa Rica. And mm-hmm. let me show you, Deppy. This is a pretty um, standard view of uh, bananas that are wilting, but um, – there we go. All right. And you can see right here. 
I, you know, this particular, I, I've seen a lot of different types of bananas since moving down here to Florida. And these particular ones with this, uh, this you know, specific looking wilt, I've seen a lot of these uh, in, you know, people's landscaping and stuff. Well, um, that is the reason why the Cavendish banana replaced the Gros Michels, the dominant commercial variety. Because they're prettier? Because that, that, that wilt was doing some serious damage to the Gros Michel. It's a fungus or something oh, like that. Oh, okay. And so okay. the Cavendish is supposed to be more resistant to that particular fungus. Even to this day, they worry that the Cavendish banana, because it has a very limited genetic uh, diversity, mm -hmm. is going to be vulnerable to a future blight like that that will wipe it out, they think. Kind of like the royals. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Oh, uh, anyway, I knew you'd get a kick out of that little I, sidebar. I definitely did. Okay, you can go ahead and share again. And Freight Awakening says, keep my rant money, Zach. I will donate to Matt. If I get laid off, I will be okay. And to Duppy, amazing research, and thank you. How much of this ties into William Wallace? Uh, not this particular material. I have done the, the family tree of the Scottish royals mm -hmm. going all the way back to the Roman Empire. Wow. And it's pretty crazy. Um, there's well, aspects of it that may tie into the red dragon, the, 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 that early Roman um, infiltration of the bloodlines may have gotten to Scotland as well. Okay. But that's kind of hard to pin down. Um, William Wallace was not of that bloodline in particular, but he might have been a branch of it at some point. Mm -hmm. I know that there are – I did run across some some Wallace descendants that seem to be pretty important in Scotland. Okay. So I wouldn't say that, that his bloodline was trivial. I would oh. not say that. Okay. And then uh, TZ Burton also says, uh, just made a donation to Matt's Gibson Go. Thank you, Zach and Debbie, for letting us know about one of our friends who needs uh, our prayers uh, and love the show, Duppy. And uh, yes, thank you. No matter what, guys, just keep Matt in your prayers. It was touch and go. I know that I talked about it while it was happening, but, um, you know, he's he's been on the mend for a couple of months now. And uh, it's really good news to know that his leg is finally to the point where he can start thinking about getting uh, a prosthetic i mean i can i can only imagine uh, it's it's horrifying to uh, to to think of having to go through something like that all right i'm sorry Duppy. please go ahead okay so that was the sixth duke the seventh duke was a chancellor of the university of london and the university of cambridge after that though the next four dukes were very high up in the British government, particularly for management of the overseas possessions, the colonies, the dominion. I think it's very likely that because of their East India co connections, their East India Company investments mm -hmm. overseas, that's why they were involved in those capacities within the government to manage their overseas fortunes. So oh, I mean, it would make sense, you know. I mean, it's just yeah. uh, you know, the 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 government of uh, you know, any country is already going to be made up of 
the most powerful and wealthiest people who have access to these disparate parts of the world. So, you know, to include the owners of the East Indian Company into the British government, it's just it's natural. Uh-huh. Well, my whole East India Company show yeah. is talking about that exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't want to get too deep into it, but it's pretty interesting. It has to do with, uh, I think, the origins of fascism. Uh, well, I mean, that's exactly what fascism is, isn't it? That's <laughs> the, right. The marriage you know the of drill. business and government, yep. <laughs> you know the drill. Okay, so the 8th Duke, Spencer Cavendish, finally they stopped being Williams. Um, he was Secretary of India, the Secretary of War. He turned down the Prime Minister job three times. And he married a woman who has the interesting distinction of being the wife of a duke twice, two different dukes. Mm. So her nickname is the Double Duchess. (laughs) Double Dutch. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's great. The ninth duke, Victor Cavendish, we're now into the later 1800s, was the governor general of Canada. That position, as you can imagine, still exists and is, I think, probably the person that basically still directs the government of Canada, but behind the scenes. So so does the governor general of Canada sit above, like, the Canadian prime minister? I think behind the scenes, okay. probably. Yeah. I mean, because this this person's job is to be the representative of the queen. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't get talked about very much, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hold on. I'm, I'm going to – you go ahead and keep talking. I'm going to see if I can uh, figure out what the hierarchy is. So you've got the federal – you've got parliament, obviously, head of state, house of commons, and the senate. It wouldn't surprise me if the uh, governor general of Canada was uh, a completely background position. Well, if you, if you yeah. think about it. With Canada being a quote-unquote sovereign country, as we're supposed to believe, why should there even be a governor general of Canada? Mm -hmm. But the position still exists. Here it is. Okay. So structure of government. You've got the monarch, obviously. Then you've got the governor general of Canada. Uh, Their official duties include national honors and awards, the uh, prime minister, and then you've got the cabinet, then you've got the ministers, then you've got parliament, then you've got departments and agencies. Let me see. Who is currently the governor general of Canada? It's a woman. And uh, letter to Canadians from the governor general. Uh, what is her name? Her name is Mary Simon. And that's all. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of other information I could find out, but this is uh, obviously not the time. But yeah. she's definitely there. Yeah. The, you know, the point I'm trying to make is that these guys by, you know, the late 1700s, early 1800s, mm-hmm. all of their jobs within the government were involved with managing overseas possessions. The dominion, yes. so to speak. Yes. <laughs> um, so Victor, besides being governor general of Canada, was also secretary of state for the colonies. Not a surprise. The tenth duke, Edward, he was kind of a weird fellow. He was the undersecretary of state for dominion affairs, uh, undersecretary of state for India and Burma, and later undersecretary of state for the colonies. So again. 
definitely involved in the overseas territories. Now we're into the 20, almost the middle of the 20th century. He was also the Grand Master of the United Grand Lodge in England. That's the big lodge for the Freemasons, right? Mm-hmm. He was the Grand Master. And his wife was pretty tight with Queen Elizabeth uh, during her early days. Uh, Duke Edward also died suspiciously in 1950. He was about 50 years old. And it turns out that the he was really tight with the guy that was suspected of being a serial killer. Oh, so, uh, this is just weird the, stuff, right? The, the royal family seems to have. Well, I mean, I guess not even just the royal family. Obviously, the uh, the Bushes weren't they alleged to have been close with like uh, Henry Lee Lucas? Oh, and um, uh, the guy that shot Reagan, Hinckley. Oh yeah, Hinckley too. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I suppose yeah. it's always uh, good to have a, 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 a psychopathic serial killer in your back pocket, just in case, right? <laughs> that's, that's right. You never know when you're going to need him. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. <laughs> that's now, what, here's another. Well, go ahead. That's what uh, governmental power buys you is uh, the, right. the access to killers. So here's another oddity. Uh, Edward Cavendish's oldest son married JFK's sister. Oh. This is the guy that would have been the Duke. Okay. Her name was Kathleen Kennedy, and she went by the nickname of Kick. Hmm. And I believe she is buried in the Cavendish family plot. Wild. Um, but here's 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 what happened. Remember I talked a little while ago about um, William the Conqueror's father, Robert, perhaps murdering his his elder brother, right? Mm-hmm. So you start seeing these patterns of the firstborn mm-hmm. perhaps being sacrificed. Yes, yes. Keep, keep that in mind because uh, Kathleen Kennedy's husband – who should have been the Duke, died in World War II, right at like a year maybe after they got married. Mm-hmm. Okay, that doesn't sound too suspicious on its own, but wait until you see what's coming. Okay. So the 11th Duke, Andrew Cavendish, um, was Undersecretary of State, Minister of the Commonwealth Relations. So he was managing the overseas um, – Holdings as well for the government. Mm-hmm. He died in 2004. Incidentally, I don't have his slide included in this deck, but on his headstone, all there is on it is his name and the snake at the top of the coat of arms. Ooh. That's all that's on it. Wild. Now, keep in mind, he was in charge of the overseas departments during the period of 1960 to 1964. Kenya was one of those overseas British departments before it got its independence. Mm-hmm. Who may have been born there during this time period? Barack Hussein Obama. Right. So uh, I've got uh, Andrew Robert Buxton Cavendish, the 11th Duke of Devonshire. Uh, I've got his headstone pulled up, and it is rather plain. For uh, a member of such a prestigious family, but that snake, that infinity snake is undeniable. Yep. 
Okay, so his son is the current Duke of Devonshire, mm-hmm. the 12th Duke. His name is Peregrine Cavendish. Mm, like the Falcon. Now, what is – exactly. Yeah. Horror. He, oddly enough, at least on paper, is not involved with the British government at all, mm-hmm. nor has he ever been. All he does is manage his family's properties and businesses, and he is a horse racing aficionado. But obviously with the case I was making about these people thinking of themselves as pharaohs, that name Peregrine is kind of spooky, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll show him in a little while. He's a predator. Uh, Let's see. One. Oh, God, I forgot this, Zach. Oh, I was going to ask. Yeah, what's going on there with these Pope hats? Yeah. Yeah, this is um, – It's like the uh, the we, Egyptians. Kind of, mm-hmm. but there's more to it than that. But I'm going to have to blow it way, way, way up okay. to see. Okay, now you can see it. Yes. All right, in 1568 – remember I talked about Bess of Hardwick, the seventh – the second wealthiest woman in England after Queen Elizabeth I. Yes. So she was the matriarch of this powerful when it really got powerful. Um, when her husband – after her husband William died, she outlived him by like 40 years or something. She remarried to – I forget the first name, but the Earl of Shrewsbury who was a Talbot. Remember I mentioned that mm-hmm. family before? Mm-hmm. And they had this weird three-way wedding. This image here is the actual um, contract from that wedding, and it's preserved on their own family website. And this weird three-way wedding was her and the Earl, and two of each of their kids married each other also in that same ceremony. At very young ages. Oh, wow. In fact, the youngest one was um, – one of the daughters, I forget which side it came from, was eight years old when this wedding occurred. Now, now, tell me, what do you notice unusual about this image? Well, I mean, first of all, their, their faces, um, they've got this kind of – it almost looks as if their noses – like almost like there's a mask on them. Exactly. Yeah. What kind of mask? Uh, like, um, I don't know. Like, a, a, I, I'm, it kind of looks like Phantom of the Opera, to be honest with you. Or how like, about how about Eyes Wide Shut? Yes, or Eyes Wide Shut. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I was trying to uh, like a carnival mask is what's coming to mind, but there's an, another word for it. Venetian mask. Venetian mask. Okay, there. They, they uh, supposedly came from Venice. Okay. And we'll see a Venice connection a little while later with these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wow, you know what it makes me wonder? So, it makes so me wonder. So guess what, if, Zach? <laughs> this is this is the point where I get to say the word Illuminati. Illuminati. They're Illuminati masks. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yes, yes, it makes sense. It almost makes me wonder if they didn't throw the masks on to uh, mix things up, and uh, you you didn't know who you were marrying until they took it off at the end, and then it's like surprise. Boy, that would be. That would be frightening. That would be frightening, yeah, especially if you're an eight-year-old marrying a grown man. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I don't know. For some reason, at this early date, this is you know 30 years before the East India Company, Mm -hmm. they had 
they may have had Venetian influences on their family, and yeah. I'll show where that's actually documented. And if you think about it, this is during the period of time where Th Thomas Cavendish, their cousin, was a privateer scouting the New World, mm -hmm. scouting Spanish and Portuguese shipping and things like that. These people did their homework. I wouldn't be surprised if they were in contact with the Venetians to study the Venetian trading empire. Because yes. prior to this, the Venetians were sort of the dominant trading empire. Correct. And they may have been studying the way their government works too. Yeah, that, well, that would make a lot of sense. All right, I'm glad I didn't forget that. <laughs> um, also, all of these guys were Knights of the Garter. You can see the yep. symbol there. And the ones I could verify, the number of them were Freemasons. I, I wouldn't be surprised if all of yeah. them were. I was going to say, I'd, I'd be shocked if they all weren't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, we made it through that one. All right, so here's the big dog that started the whole East India Company thing. I've talked about his ancestors. This was the guy that hired Thomas Hobbes, who was the writer of Leviathan. And I'll describe what that nasty piece of work is about. It, and Incidentally, it used to be taught in the schools. I mm. remember learning about it when I was in school, but I doubt it's taught now. Um, okay, so this guy and his partners, and when I do the East India Company show, I'll talk about his sort of right-hand man in these economic endeavors um, because they were intermarried as well, had a lot of correspondence with a fairly famous Venetian noble statesman named Paolo Sarpi. Um, these guys did tours of the continents, hung out with Paolo Sarpi and traded letters and things like that. So it was quite an extensive correspondence. So that's the Venetian connection. Um, this was the guy, William Cavendish, who was the first Earl of Devonshire. Um, he was likely the principal investor in the East India Company. That was in 1600. You can imagine what that fortune would be like now. Absolutely. Especially, especially after the end of the East India Company, technically, in 1874, hint, hint, which was awful close to 1871 now, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. Um, you can imagine what – after after the East India Company ended, imagine taking that for, fortune and reinvesting it in the more modern corporate infrastructure out there. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, one of the reasons I didn't like the Pazer thing was that under the Pazer theory, kind of have to go with, well, okay, these guys built their fortune up via the railroads and stuff, but that was only the last 200 years. This fortune goes back at least 500 years. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're talking about real generational wealth here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. under the radar. Yes, yes. intergenerational wealth. And I mentioned he paid for uh, – the, the East India Company was formed in 1600, so 18 years later he bought his earldom, if that's the right word, yeah. for 10,000 pounds. What would that be worth now, like 100 million or yeah. something? I was going to do a uh, – okay, so uh, 
pounds uh, value sixteen eighteen. Okay, so <laughs> okay, you so, ha- you have that website handy? Oh no, I mean I just uh, I I can look it up. So um, hang on, how oh, sixteen eighteen British pound to the U.S. dollar? Okay, so. One single British pound would have been worth $1,974 and a couple of cents in today's money. So add uh, what? 10,000 pounds yeah. times 1,000? Yeah, 10,000 pounds times 1,000. Well, times 1974. Uh, Uh-oh, you lost me on the math. You're going to have to take it from here. 1974 <laughs> times 10, 1, 2, 3. Uh, that would be... Uh, one nineteen million seven hundred and forty thousand in today's dollars for a title. For a title, that's a lot of freaking money. Paid to the king. Yes, yes, that's more than Mar-a-Lago is allegedly worth today. That's right. <laughs> oh. Well, at least that number didn't calculate out to eighteen million six plus six plus six, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, so um. So the Cavendishes allied and married into Thomas Cavendish, married into this family called the Sands. Um, it's pronounced Sands, but spelled Sandies with a Y at that time. Okay. Where a silent Y comes from, I don't know, but maybe you could get weird and say, oh, it's Y again, right? Mm-hmm. But um, so Thomas Cavendish's side of the family, not the Dukes. He was the guy that was a privateer that was out scouting the new world and all that. Married into the Sandys family, and later Edwin Sandys became William Cavendish, the first earl, the first investor in the East India Company. He became like um, William Cavendish's advisor to the company. So Cavendish, the big dog, was probably even then behind the scenes somewhat. Mm-hmm. And this Edwin Sandys guy was his representative. The front man. Front man, right, yeah. to the East India Company. The beard. <laughs> the beard to his mustache. <laughs> Sandys was also the treasurer of the Virginia Company, and this William Cavendish invested in the Virginia Company as well. Mm-hmm. Um, big supporters of colonization. Um, he also invested in the Muscovy Company, which you may have heard of, was an early trading company dealing with Russia. Okay. Summer, Summers Island Company, which was Bermuda, and also the Northwest Passage Companies, which I think might have had a little bit to do with Canada okay. in the early days. So well, I know that the, this- the Northwest Passage is the that uh, uh, the passage. Through the uh, uh, the Arctic and that they were trying right. to find, there's uh, an excellent show that came out a couple of years ago called The Terror, which is about a British uh, ship that is trying that was to. The, that was the Franklin expedition. Was it the Franklin? Okay, yes, because uh, because yep. I, I knew about it previously, and then to uh, but they they did it. They did a really really good job of uh, articulating what happens. But the ship itself gets uh, stuck in the ice, and they were there. They survived in the Arctic for years, and then eventually, I think like two or three people made it out. Everybody else was killed. Or, yeah, and I, yeah, I think they found some corpses many, many years later mm-hmm. that were frozen. 
mm-hmm. who has died from lead poisoning, I think. It's become from the, yeah, the, from the tens. Yes, yes, the yeah. tens were poisoning them. Absolutely insane. Yeah. I haven't I haven't seen that movie. I should watch it. Oh, but I, I've read about the Franklin Expedition before. It's really good. It's really good. It's it's a series. I can't remember what where I saw it. I think I saw it on like Hulu or something like that. But it's worth a watch. It's good. Cool. Yeah. So this last little piece on this slide is a – remember that this family has a website for their tourist spot, Chat, Chatsworth House, where they actually do live. Okay. Um, and they – I've actually gotten a lot of key information off of their own website. Um, this is a page of this William Cavendish. Remember, this is like 1618. Page from his ledger tallying up his proceeds from the East India Company on wow. this page. Wow. And they took a picture of it and put it on their website. All right. Here we get into something very interesting, and I'm going to have to blow it up. I finally found a copy of the original charter of the East India Company. Ooh. Thanks to P. Thaggy on Foxhole for insisting that he had seen it before on the web, and it did exist. I didn't think I'd be able to find it, but at his insistence, I did. Gosh, I mean, I would think if you, if they've got the Magna Carta out there, this has got to be out there too. Do, have you actually found, like, do, do they have the actual document scanned in, or does it only exist in a uh, transcribed form? Um, I think there are transcribed versions out there. Yeah. I didn't really think I needed it because what I wanted was the names. Sure. Here are the names. Yes. These are the investors. Mm-hmm. The fifth one mentioned, William Cavendish Esquire, yep. right at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the main name on it is this George Clifford, the Earl of Cumberland. And um, He's the first name mentioned, but I think he was the promoter because he was the cousin of Queen Elizabeth I. Mm-hmm. So he's the one that got these guys in the door with the queen and – you know, put pressure, leverage, whatever, yeah. on the queen to sign this thing. Yeah. Incidentally, this thing was signed on December 31st of 1600, which seemed odd, the last day of the year. But somebody mentioned the other day that from an, there might be an occult significance to the last day of the year. Mm. I'm not – I haven't dug into that, but there might be something there. So – You'd think, okay, the first name on the list is the big dog, the Earl of Cumberland, but he actually died penniless. He was like a – oh, in the modern day, he would be a a whale in Vegas, and he lost it all kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also interesting that his last name is Clifford. Does that name ring a bell? I mean Clifford the Big Red Dog? No. I probably didn't think so, but but no. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Stephanie Clifford? Uh, that name is familiar, but it's I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Otherwise, otherwise known as Stormy Daniels. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's a connection there, but I thought it was kind of humorous. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. So anyway, um, William Cavendish, front and center on the original charter, verified. That's I great. suspect. Given the financial status of his family at the time, remember his mother was the second wealthiest woman in all of England. He was probably the primary investor in the East India Company. 
Also, some names of note. Well, we have Robert Sandy. He was a cousin of Edwin Sandy that we saw a minute ago, Cavendish's right-hand man. This guy was a baron. Okay, so there's a Sandy. But look at this one, Zach. William Romney. Mitt Romney. Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually done Pierre Delecto's family tree, and this William Romney is on it. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But look at these two beauties right here, Zach. Yes, Gore's. Al Gore. Two brothers. I have Gore's family tree done, and they're on it. So are you seeing a pattern here? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. These wealthy British families associated with the corporate world of the British Empire and their descendants in America. Yep. So there's other names here that you could probably make some, some similar cases. How about John and Robert Middleton? Yes, yes. Kate Middleton. Kate Middleton. Yep. Yeah. So there's a lot. A lot more on here that you could do. I just don't have the time to do all these families. But, right, right. Um, of note, there's also the Thomas Talbot. I've mentioned that family yeah. a couple of times now. They mm-hmm. are, as far as going back with these families in the in the trees, um, it seems like the most important ones are Norman nobility, descended cousins of William the Conqueror. Talbots were another one of those families. Mm-hmm. I see another Spencer in there as well. Yeah, there's Spencer. Yep. Yep, yep. And uh, Esther <laughs> says, I don't know how the heck Zach manages to interview a guest, take it all in, and still manage to stay on top of the chat. I usually rewatch Zach's shows because I can't chew bubblegum and walk at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's a handful. It is a, it is a handful. Let me just also say thank you to uh, TZ Burton. Uh, who said, I just made a donation to Matt's Give, Send, Go. I want to thank Zach and Debbie for letting us know about all of our friends who need our prayers and love the show, Duppy. Also, Backdoor Biden said, hey, Zach, I canceled my subscription to other channels and kept yours. You're the best. Thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate it. If you're taking a look at the uh, bottom of the chat, there is a button that says subscribe. At least that's what it looks like for me. And then you also have underneath the video window, uh, there is a join button, and uh, I believe either of those are to join as a member through Locals, which gives you a membership to the channel. I don't know that I'm ever going to have time to do uh, a set of members-only streams just because I'm working so much already. Um, but uh, it, obviously it is financial support to the channel, and I want to say it's like $50 a year, and it, uh, it goes right to the channel. So thank you to those of you who are members. All right, continuing Thank on. you. Yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, when I was putting the material together for my later you know, East India show, because I really knew there was more there than I had originally dug on, I happened to notice that this is the East India Company stamp, their logo. There's that upside down Y again. Remember me when I turned the Y upside down and put it on top of the pyramid? Yep, yep. And you see these patterns all over the place that might be, you know, uh, references to pagan belief systems. This is the the pagan trinity. Um, I had, before I found this, I had kind of spent some time just to get my head straight on what the pagan trinities were like from the various civilizations and 
who is the equivalent of the other one when you move to a different civilization. So, for example, in Egypt, you have Isis mm-hmm. as the mother god, mm-hmm. like Sibylle we saw in the Roman world. Mm-hmm. Isis was the mother god. Set, after he killed Osiris in the Egyptian myth, mm-hmm. might, might be the uh, father god and Horus being the baby god on earth. Mm-hmm. Because remember, the pharaoh is viewed as being Horus on earth. The Canaan equivalent would be Astarte, L. L, I found a lot of references to where even scholars think that L was the equivalent of Set. Remember, Set's not not viewed as being a good god, right? No, no. <laughs> and, and in that system, the the in the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, who were Canaanites in particular, are associated with the phoenix. And the phoenix is a bird, so it's probably the equivalent of Horus, a raptor bird. In Greece, it was Rhea and Cronus. Cronus is associated with El often, and their equivalent was the eagle. Remember the first couple of slides I had in the first show about yes. this raptor bird mm-hmm. possibly being Horus in various incarnations mm-hmm. throughout all of these ancient civilizations for the most part, at least the ones in the Middle East and, and Europe by the time of the Romans. So in Rome we had Sibylle and the eagle, the Roman eagle, and Saturn was the equivalent of El. So here's here's the pagan trinity, at least in four different uh, civilizations. And, you know, you could add the Mesopotamian ones and maybe even the Hindu ones. But I got really confused with the Mesopotamian ones, so I left it off. <laughs> and so this is sort of their uh, animal raptor aspect for Horus. And so the equivalent of a the human manifestation. For Egypt, it would be the pharaoh. and Canaan, it's Baal. In Greece, it's Zeus. And in Rome, it would have to be the emperor. But the emperor, in particular during Constantine's time, he identified with Sol Invictus, which was a sun deity, kind of like Apollo. Um, so, you know, these are the equivalences which make it a little easier to comprehend their thinking, at least for me. So it was a necessary exercise. This might be confusing to other people, but by the time you get to the East India Company, I couldn't help but after recognizing, holy crap, that might be the upside down Y. This is the Ben Ben Stone. This might be Jacob's Ladder pointing to the heavens. Mm -hmm. E-I-C-L, Isis, and the sea, well, that should be the pharaoh or Baal or Horus or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's a sea. Hmm. Could that mean Cavendish? Yes. In this case? I don't know, man. That <laughs> kind of tripped me out when I found this. Ugh. I like but it. But also this this pattern of what you might think is the Ben-Ben stone, the primordial mound. Mm-hmm. Um exists on an awful lot of coats of arms, if you know what to look for, yeah. and the Trinity. This is Henry VIII's family coat of arms, the Tudors. Mm-hmm. Ben Ben Stone. Yep, yep. Two gods above and one below. 
Yes. There's a lot of them. You look at these coat of arms. This pattern is in a lot of them. All right, now we're on the Thomas Hobbes. This is an important slide okay. because he's best known for his book Leviathan. This is the famous cover of it, mm -hmm. and the cover has what's depicted as a king, but he's the sole sovereign of both the secular world uh, manifested as the sword mm -hmm. and the spiritual world manifested as the bishop's staff or crozier as it's called. And in this book, Hobbes makes the argument that mankind is too stupid to rule himself and should have a sole sovereign. Yes, yes. An antichrist mm -hmm. kind of, or pharaoh figure. Um, and remember, this guy – well, to start off with the first bullet, he, he's known as a political philosopher for his social contract theory. Social contract theory is basically how to properly rule the masses. Mm -hmm. What is the contract between the people and the ruler? He was hired by the first – Earl of Devonshire, the guy that was the first investor in the East India Company, to tutor four generations of uh, Cavendishes. He was also along for the ride with William Cavendish with discussions with Paolo Sarpi, the Venetian statesman. So they took trips down to the continent and visited Venice and probably some other places and were doing their reconnaissance, I would imagine, their intelligence gathering, so to speak, for how England was going to enter the new world. So his book Leviathan, he wrote 1651, which was you know 50 years after the founding of the East India Company. Um, it's a very famous book. It's not taught in schools very often anymore. But listen to these two bullet points that I grabbed. These are synopses of, or synopses of what this book says. Uh, this first one is a very famous quote. And in the context of without a political community, the life of a man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That's a pretty famous quote. I don't know if any of the audience have heard of it before because, like I said, this stuff isn't taught. But this is basically elitism. Certainly. He's referring to the masses here. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he argues that the masses have to be ruled. They cannot rule themselves because they're too nasty, brutish, poor – and stupid. So he advocates for sovereign authority to whom all individuals in society cede some right for the sake of protection. Oh gosh, that sounds. How uh, often have we heard that? <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a very modern take on uh, security as well, <clears throat> especially among the neocons. So, as this last image here, and I have to blow this up a lot to. Make sure you see it. This is a screen grab mm -hmm. that I got from a talk by oh, our best buddy, <laughs> Yuval Noah Harari. Oh, he gave God. this talk in 2018 at 
the World Economic Forum. Wow. Now, now I don't want to repeat anything he says because it's yeah. gross. Mm-hmm. But behind him on the screen the entire time of this talk is this like Matrix-style computer code, like it's cool <laughs> or something. Halfway, literally halfway through his talk, and you can see where I stopped the video. Mm-hmm. This flashes up on the screen behind him, mm-hmm. and he doesn't say a word about it. Just for like a single frame or – No, it lasts for a couple of minutes, and then it goes back to the computer code. Oh, wow. He doesn't say a word about it. Yep. You recognize that now, right? Absolutely. That's the yeah. cover of Leviathan. Yep, yep. yep. So we kind of know what the NWO thinks, and here Absolutely. he is uh, – Telling us where it might have come from. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, real quick, uh, my two cents says you should reach out to Jimmy from Bright Insight to add some more depth to this conversation, and uh, and then <laughs> and then uh, it's uh, not you, enough depth. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Jimmy is somebody I've wanted to interview for years. Um, I have you know tagged him and commented on his stuff on uh, on both YouTube and Twitter. I've never been able to get him to respond to me. As far as I know, he doesn't have like an email address that he publishes. I want to say he has like maybe uh, a Patreon or something like that. I know he's got an Instagram. I think I actually sent him a message on Instagram, but long story short, I can't get him to reply to me. If you guys are, are viewers of Bright Insight and you've ever seen him publish a method to actually contact him, please let me know what that is because I would absolutely love to have him on. Uh, there's a number of subjects that he's gone into that uh, I think would be great for the show. But uh, yeah, I was, and I, I don't see how this could be any, any deeper than it already is. But. Oh, actually, actually, I can. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if anybody could endure it. <laughs> yeah, probably. We're uh, we're we're going into our third. Well, I mean, we're in our third hour right now. So, if we uh, if we could shoot for uh, another twenty minutes, that would be great because I, I'm sure that the dogs are ready to go for their walk. Oh, taboo! That's a, that's another show that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. So this next slide is really important. Um, the fourth Duke. The great-grandson of the guy we were talking about previously. Um, he he was the first guy in this family that had the merging of the two dragon bloodlines, the red and the white. Yes. Now, it had been accomplished 100 years earlier when Henry VIII's father married Elizabeth of York. Mm-hmm. That So – there was something watershed about that event at the end. It was right at the end of the War of the Roses, the red and the white rose, right? Mm-hmm. And so now you had the merging of the bloodlines on the English crown with Henry the Seventh and, of course, Henry the Eighth. Well, the Cavendishes achieved that about a hundred years later when this guy married Mary Butler. She was from the Irish nobility. Remember, the Red Dragon had moved over to Ireland mm-hmm. on that earlier slide. She was the daughter of the first Duke of Ormond. Um, oh, Ormond, Ormond comes from the ancient Scandinavian word wormmond, and mm. I think mond is French for like mound or mountain. Yep. Or something. Well, Orm comes from the ancient Scandinavian word worm. Snake mountain. Which is what? A dragon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. So her. Her, her lineage was the Dukes of 
Dragon Mountain or Dragon Hill or yeah. something like that. So you can see that there's it's hidden in there somewhere. Yes. But anyway, so this guy married her. So now we have the premier bloodline, so to speak, in the Cavendish family. He was also tutored by Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes lived to be like in his 90s. So this was – I think this guy was the last generation that was tutored by Hobbes before he died – but the singular most important event, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, that is when William and Mary deposed the Catholic Stuart kings, like James I, his descendants, mm -hmm. of England and took over the crown. Why did they do it? Because this William Cavendish and um, – he was an earl at the time, and a Talbot earl, Earl of Shrewsbury, and a couple of other very important nobility members wrote a letter to William of Orange in the Netherlands, who was pretty cozy with the Dutch East India Company at this time, wrote a letter to him and said, we'll support you if you come over and take over England. Hmm. So William of Orange raised a bunch of money, probably some of it through these guys, and invaded England. The Catholic king, Charles II, I think it was, um, left without a fight, fled to the continent. William and Mary take over. That is the event. Remember, these nobles that wrote that letter, it's called the Invitation to William. They are <laughs> – Interestingly known as the Immortal Seven. Again, that immortality thing. Mm -hmm. um, they made it. They they were heavily involved with the City of London, the financial sector, the East India Company, and all of that. Well, they battled with the with the monarch a lot to the point where they decided to get rid of him, and it's that event. Where the city of London, the old square mile in the middle, the financial district, mm -hmm. became sovereign. It actually became sovereign, completely sovereign at that point. And to prove it, I have a video to show. Let's see. How do I do this? I'm going to stop the share and share a different. Oops, I have to change that. Yeah, although it falls under the jurisdiction of Greater London and the GLA, the City of London has a special status. It has its own government, its own mayor, and its own independent police force. You're cheating. <laughs> I want to let – I want you to see these embarrassed bankers talking about it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Watch, watch the looks on their faces during this. Okay. And kudos to Anka Vanka for finding this one, too. Stable growth, none of this boom-bust cycle, banking crisis, public money used to bail out banks. People don't want that. In Germany, these community banks... It's very interesting Dominant. because they've never used public money in these 200 years. Not a single one has ever been bailed out with public money, and no depositor has lost any money. Although, Richard, your argument is complex, principles are terribly simple. It is very simple. And although you are, although you are a little defeatist, I'm not. Def 
You yeah, maybe I'm defeated, <laughs> but, but I like it. <laughs> but uh, it's just the idea of, how can I put it? Go on. Getting, getting through the regulatory, they are so reluctant. But that's why it is hard work. But that's, why hard work. We, that's why we got you in. We're going we're gonna to have you as I the think ambassador. It's, uh, it's, I, I, think, I, I have to say, uh, this has been brilliantly explained. Has the UK got a finance curse? Is this a trick question? Because the UK doesn't have finance. The city of London has, and it's not part of the UK. Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. It's international, is right. The city of London is outside the United Kingdom. Did you know that? It's, it's really shocking. And it, therefore, it's also not part of the EU, which explains... Uh, the, it couldn't be part of the EU because you have to have democratic elections, and the city of London doesn't, right? It's, it's the banks that have the votes, right? Right. Per staff, you know. Well, the okay. you how, do you, how do you start yeah. unpicking this puzzle? I never knew. That's a very useful piece of information. And of course, it's not part <laughs> it's of the. It's a pretty dangerous piece and of information. And it's not part of the UK because the Queen is not allowed to enter without permission. She's not the sovereign, therefore, it's not part of the UK. You know, and of course, that's since you know 1688. Well, like <laughs> 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 wow! How'd you like? How'd you like that? <laughs> that's, oh, that's great. Oh man. That you see the look? Yeah. See the look on that guy's face? Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's wild. That is so wild. <laughs> All right, let me Crazy. get back to the slides. All right. So the Cavendishes and Talbots had an awful lot to do with that happening. And at that point, the city of London which the East India Company is part of, probably the biggest part of it at that point in time, um, benefited mightily from that. So the, in the aftermath, um, basically the, the power of the king got downgraded. And by 1690, parliament was the ruling authority. But... As I'm going to show in the East India Company show, a lot of East India Company people, officers and, and whatnot, um, entered Parliament. And to this day, the City of London has a representative at Parliament mm -hmm. all the time. <laughs> so this gets into the, the issue of does the City of London – actually control England and since that's corporate interest do do we since 1690 have a fascist government in England yes wow <laughs> yeah oh that's great that is great and yes i see people saying you know just like dc uh it uh yeah i mean dc certainly has special status uh but um, yeah, I don't even know. I, I, I've, this, I, I've, this, I've seen so this many. Predates, <laughs> yeah. This predates DC by two hundred years. Well, correct. Yeah. And it and it predates the Vatican mm -hmm. technically by two hundred and fifty years. Wow. The Vatican didn't become a sovereign state until Mussolini gave it that. Oh, he was a fascist. Yes. Yes. Uh, he gave was. it that status in nineteen twenty nine. Mm -hmm. So this is much older. So this is. One of my arguments, you know, a lot of people who've watched all the videos out there um, are fairly convinced that the Vatican, you know, going back to Unum Sanctum and all that stuff, 
is who runs everything. And I'm making the argument that it's – I think it's the city of London. Wow. I mean, top of the heap. That would, that would certainly make sense. I mean, it's basically, you know, I mean, the financial center, it's all the money, of course. <laughs> you know, it would make right. sense. I mean, what the, the queen, uh, well, the royal family at this point, I mean, they're virtually ceremonial, you know? I mean, like, exactly. they don't really do anything. All they exactly. do is exist for people to, you know, worship, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, you know, they have the bloodlines, but mm-hmm. they don't have the power. Yep. The true yep. power is probably in the city of London. And the Cavendishes, being the principal owners of the East India Company, are probably the most powerful of them all. Why? Because the Bank of England didn't exist until 1694, right after this occurred. So prior to 1694, I think you could easily make the argument that the most powerful entity in the city of London was the East India Company. That makes sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as a reward for bringing William and Mary over, William Cavendish was made Lord Steward. So he was watching over what William and Mary do, and he was elevated to Duke. All of the signatories of that letter – here's the list of them here Mm -hmm. – were elevated. So some of them became earls, the ones who weren't earls before. But um, incidentally, this Russell family is very important even today as well. But Talbot and Cavendish were both already earls, so they got elevated to dukes. Okay, so that gets us into this a little bit more on the East India Company. Like I said, I have a show that does a lot more. Mm -hmm. But I found out about this show a month ago. Watched it, seeing if I could find little juicy tidbits. Mm-hmm. I didn't really see any in the show itself that added to what I was trying to do. It was an interesting show, though, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I was bummed it, and it didn't get picked up for another season. Well, they're still talking about it. Oh, are they? Oh, that would be so yeah. sweet. <laughs> but they don't know when. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's negotiation stuff. But um, – Oh, it he is, is famous. Stephen Knight. It is. He he did he did the first season of Daredevil, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe might that's, be. Yeah, yeah. I'm not familiar with him. Okay. But there's a quote of his down below that kind of blew my mind. Um, it is based on some historical fact. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember, there was a, a squabble over land in British Columbia that it was all about, and the East India Company was trying to worm its way in. That is actually true, but the whole family's dynamic in it is not not entirely true from what I could tell. But in just reading about it, Stephen Knight uh, was interviewed before they released this show, and this quote from him was pretty amazing to me. He said, quote, talking about the protagonist of the show, mm-hmm. quote, this man, James Delaney – is a deeply flawed and deeply troubled human being. His greatest struggle will be against the East India Company, which throughout the 19th century was the equivalent of the CIA, the NSA, and the biggest, baddest multinational corporation on earth, all rolled into one self-righteous, religiously motivated monolith. Absolutely, yeah. 
that sound like the deep state to oh, you? Certainly. <laughs> certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So obviously the East India Company must have had a massive intelligence network. And I found some clues to that that I show in in the follow up show on the East India Company a oh. bit. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to getting there. Is that the conclusion of tonight? Are no, we gonna... no, 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 no. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Keep going, keep going. All right, this is the, the really weird stuff. Okay. Now, I kind of figured that this was so deep, and, and I don't know how many people are actually interested in, in history that much, but maybe this helped. Mm-hmm. Um, my original plan was to do this work write a book, be done with it, and go back to studying rocks or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I found this, that changed my mind to where I had to tell somebody. (laughs) (laughs) So this is the present Duke of Devonshire, Peregrine Cavendish. Remember we talked about him a minute ago. Mm -hmm. They say, you know, Forbes or whoever says that his estimated wealth is $800 I think that's a joke. Based on what I've shown you, sure. I mean, just imagine 500 years of that kind of wealth, that compound interest. Mm-hmm. Give me a break. Um, so, let's see. When I was putting these slides together the first time around, I, I just for completeness would put on these dues, like when they were born and when they died, just mm-hmm. so people could see, you know, when they were influential. For some reason, I put down this guy's actual birth date on here just because I could. <laughs> Didn't think much about it. Returned to this slide a day later, and I, all of a sudden I had this weird idea. Is there anything significant about his birth date? Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, I'm not much into the numerology stuff other than all the six crap that I run across. But mm-hmm. um, So I took his birth date and said, okay. April 27, 427, 1944. Two and seven is nine. Maybe that's an upside down six. You had a bit to say about nine earlier. Mm-hmm. But 1944, you add those up, you get 18, and that's six plus six plus six. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, that's kind of weird, but all right. So what? He was born in 1944. Is that just luck of the draw? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I went one step further, and I pulled up the satanic holidays. <laughs> I don't even know why I did this because I didn't intend to go in this direction with this stuff at all. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that April 27th is right in the middle of what they call the Grand Climax, which is also known as Corpus Day what? Ball. Did you read that? Corpus yes. Day Ball. Wow. And I was like, whoa. And I had already done the the symbolic stuff where I would kind of argued, well, maybe Baal is another name for the pharaoh or the god on earth or Nimrod or something like that. Rather than being a god as we're told, what if it's a god on earth like the pharaoh? And that kind of freaked me out when I saw this. And I had to kind of take a deep breath and go outside for a couple of hours. And just kind of get my head together. There was another one of those moments I'll get to shortly. But if remember, they have their own website. They also put uh, videos on YouTube mm-hmm. advertising their big house to come ooh and ah at. Mm-hmm. Well, back about 10 years ago, this is Peregrine Cavendish and his wife, 12th Duke Devonshire. Mm-hmm. They paid something close to a half a million to a million dollars 
to have a particular sculpture put in their house. This is that sculpture. Do you know what that is? DNA. It's his DNA replicated throughout like one wing of the house in all of its glory of little ATG pairs or whatever they oh are. Oh, my God. That I mean, is like the obviously this guy's, display of narcissism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Obviously, this guy's really, really, really proud of his DNA. Yeah. And it's there that day, this day, and I know of – I have not run across a genealogist pointing out lizard DNA in this thing yet. <laughs> so <laughs> – for what it's worth. <laughs> All right. Here's the second moment. This one was a double oh shit moment. Mm -hmm. Like the very next day, I had this crazy idea. Man, if this guy was born in some weird ceremony, a ball ceremony, low less, what the hell was Crowley doing that day? Mm -hmm. Alistair Crowley. <laughs> I didn't expect to be able to find anything at all. It was just a wild hair kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But even on Crowley's Wikipedia page, it says this. In April 1944, Crowley briefly moved to Aston Clinton in Buckinghamshire where he visited some people. Well, the house that he visited, Aston Clinton, was owned by the Rothschilds. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Yes. yes. During this corpus of ball thing, that Crowley of all people. I wasn't even sure Crowley was still alive in 44 when I first looked at this. Yeah, I think he died in like 48 or something like that. Okay. God, well, he, was, he was a scary looking man. Yeah. So this house was owned by the Rothschilds, and obviously he had an Egyptian thing going on, yep, right? Yep. Golden Dawn. So there's a little bit more about this house. Enter Stanley Kubrick number three. The village was used at a filming location for the 1962 film Lolita. Oh, my God. So, of course, it's a pedo film yeah. by Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick has so many elements of this elite world running in the background, like just little Absolutely. clues like to the grand culmination of Eyes Wide Shut. My ultimate dream, if anybody out there just happens to have been in uh, on the Warner Brothers lot, <laughs> to see the original cut of Eyes Wide Shut, that would be like the ultimate, the, the piece de resistance. I, I would retire. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd be afraid to watch that one, though. <laughs> Man, I can only imagine like, you know, just whatever, you know, what it exposed. But like ShamWow, wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> the TV program Hotel Babylon was filmed in Aston Clinton. Okay. But remember, this occurred during World War II. During World War II, this house was used as a hospital for the war wounded. So if you're going to do some weird-ass resurrection of ball ceremony, you might just need some body parts or fluids. Yeah. Didn't did they have what a place to get them? Did they have blood listed as part of the uh, uh, uh demure? Uh, no, blood is on the other one, yeah, weird sex stuff and corpus de ball. I mean, that would be like like book of ball. Wonder no, corpus means corpse, so the body oh, of okay. ball. Okay, so okay. I look at it as like 
is it a resurrection ceremony? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was and thinking this, like corpus and, as like collection of works, but I mean the body makes sense too. Yeah, and so is this guy, Peregrine Cavendish, is he the product of that ceremony? Ooh, yeah, that may be. Uh, also, his mother came from a very weird family. One of her sisters was a Adolf Hitler groupie, and she was born in Swastika, Ontario. I, I mean, I could go on. It's just weird mm-hmm. stuff, but I don't, that, that'll take too much time. Okay, a little more fun with the Cavendishes. Believe it or this is Peregrine right here and his wife, and I had a little fun adding some <laughs> embellishments. Um, his nickname is Stoker, like as in Bram Stoker. Hmm. Yeah. I'm sure he never worked on a train stoking the coals or anything like that. No. So where would that name come? I don't. I still don't know. But this is at the fu- this picture's from the funeral of his mother, and look who's standing behind him. Not in front of him, but behind him. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know if that's significant. At, at a, you'd think at a funeral the son would get to stand foremost. So maybe that's nothing, but it's still kind of curious that Chuck is standing behind him. Also, in this area of Derbyshire, a couple of years ago, a, a vintage vampire slaying kit was found and auctioned off. Um, the Bible within it dates to 1842, which may indicate that this kit predates Bram Stoker. Wow. He didn't write the novel until 1897. Yeah. I don't know that's for sure, but, I mean, this was a Fox News article about this thing. Mm-hmm. Also, when I first started digging into this family, I was just kind of familiarizing myself with their family tree. And, you know, the one on Wikipedia is kind of ugly to look at. And I have my own. But one day there was a name that showed up. You can see this one in red, Diana Cavendish, born in 2001. I was like, what? I never ran across that person. And then a week later it was gone. I did make a screen cap, and it turns out that Diana Cavendish was a character in a cartoon from the early 2000s. And it was a cartoon about these young girls that are witches. Hmm. Just more weirdness. Yeah. Also, there's a really ugly article that I found about Jimmy Savo that claims that at least Peregrine's parents, Andrew, remember the one with the snake on his headstone? Mm -hmm. Andrew and his mother, Deborah, were very, very, very close friends with Jimmy Savo. What did I say earlier? It's always nice to have a psychopath in your pocket. And I'm pretty sure Savile came from another um, nobility family from Yorkshire. Mm. I did his family tree like two weeks ago. Okay. And it's a little dicey, but I think he can be connected to another set of earls. All right, here's sort of the piece de resistance. Do you remember this cue drop? Absolutely, yes. Okay. As far as I know... No one ever decoded P equals C. Mm-hmm. You remember that? I definitely do. Yep. How about Pharaoh equals Cavendish? Mm-hmm. That would take it all the way back to Egypt. 
Yeah. In the... And I wasn't the only one thinking along those lines. Obviously, Sean Ross, the guy that did that video in Switzerland that got me started, was saying stuff about pharaohs. There was a personality on Twitter named Wells Hells Bells who kind of knew her shit. I mm-hmm. think it's a her. Yeah. She she knew a lot about the Mormon church, and she was digging on that. And I ran across a post she made one day where she says, nice, and she was replying to something else. She says, P was never Pacer in the Matrix and Friends misdirect. P equals Pharaoh or similar symbolic title for top of the cult. I knew Q team wasn't going to tell us. So I wasn't the only lunatic going down this path, or at least thinking along those lines. Another possible decode of the part just above P equals C, where it says the chair serves the master. Who is the master? Mm-hmm. There's some very tentative links between the Cavendishes and the church, Catholic church. I do think the chair refers to the chair of St. Peter. Okay. This is a picture of the chair of the St. Peter in the Vatican. You've probably seen this a few times in some days. Yeah, yeah definitely. They they make a case that it looks like a sheep down here and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also completed in the year 1666. Um, I think that might be what this refers to as the chair. And the master, you know, people say that's Satan. But if you remember from the first show, the literal translation of Baal means Lord or Master. Yep, yep. So I wonder if the chair of St. Peter at this point in time is serving this guy, the Pharaoh, the Baal, the Master, mm-hmm. who is otherwise denoted by YYY or 666. Wow. Okay, now we get to another video. Are we okay on time? Because I have a couple of quick slides after that, and then we're done. Okay, yeah, we'll we go ahead. time and, for a video? Yeah, yeah, we'll go ahead and finish it out. Okay. Stop the share. Pull up. Let's see. Get on the right tab. Okay. Okay, Wells Hells, Well Hells Bells is uh, on um, Truth Social. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, I just I lost track of of that person after the purge, but I don't I don't have a Truth Social account, so I probably wouldn't be able to find anything. Okay. Without making one, but it's good to know that she's still around. Yeah, I think it's she. All right, you ready? Yep, go for it. All right, this is a pretty crazy video. Kind of not too many people picked up on this one. Oh, shit. Sorry. It's okay. I always forget that share sound button every time you reshare. That should be defaulted. I don't understand that. Oh, okay, I got it. Who do you think Prince Charles was referring to when at the COP26 meeting he's referring to he? Now, I didn't see uh, – I did not see your video. I saw the video, which you're going to show. Folks, you got to pay attention to this. 
Now pay close attention because this is something that I that I want you, all of you students, Bible students especially, pay attention to, right? Okay, here we go. Required. We know this will take trillions, not billions of dollars. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. We need a vast military-style campaign to marshal... Wait, and let, let me replay it so that you know I'm not making this up, okay? Let me just replay it. Listen to the last part of this. A vast military-style campaign to do what? Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. A vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the what? Global, the global private, private sector. sector. Mm, to, yes. Isn't that... So, so, so we're yeah. going to basically utilize the mechanisms that have been deployed by private industry to move a cashless society forward. Now, watch what he says, because this gets really significant. Watch this. With trillions at his disposal. Wait, wait, wait. Let's, yeah. let's rewind that again. In the You know what? Can we do this? Let's play this from the very beginning so that you guys understand that there is no reference to who he is. Who is his? Let me play it again. Newable and sustainable. So, ladies and gentlemen, my plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. We know this will take trillions, not billions of dollars. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at his disposal. Who is his? Look what he goes on to say. Far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. Beyond what? Can, we, can I just say the last part of this? Beyond what? Look what he says. It offers the only real prospect beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real... Beyond the governments of the world's leaders. Yeah, so his, his? his disposal. So, folks, we li this is absolutely remarkable. And I guarantee you, he said this on purpose. He's reading his notes. All right, I'm going to stop it there. It goes on for a couple more minutes of them just freaking out over this, but you guys mm -hmm. get the idea, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Pretty, pretty freaking creepy. Yeah. His and... He, yeah, more remember money Chuck is close to this guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow.
All right, we're almost there, Zach. Okay. Can you see it? We have we have liftoff. Okay. Um, one more thing. If you remember, uh, back up to this other slide, the whole chair master thing. Mm-hmm. If you remember on the, the Leviathan philosophy, it's one sole sovereign of both the secular and the spiritual world, right? Remember, he's holding the sword and the bishop's staff. That's that's a pharaoh. That's what Akhenaten was. He was a, a he was like the pope as well as being the secular king of Egypt. He was the pope of the Aten or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this person, this Antichrist person, is going to be. Uh, affiliated with the church somehow. And here we have the chair serves the master. So I just want to point out that this is secular and spiritual. Okay. A couple of testimonials to support perhaps what we're seeing. Do you remember this person on Twitter named Sarah Ruth Ashcraft? I absolutely remember Sarah Ruth Ashcraft, yes. She was the one that made the accusation that she was bought and paid for by Tom Hanks as a sex slave or something like that, right? Yep, and she yep. said she came from these families. Mm-hmm. So I had captured some of her tweets that seemed relevant. Um, the first one here, she says, my family tells me that we are descended from the same line, from Abraham by way of David, David and Solomon. On through Mary, mother of Jesus. My family also claimed Constantine and Charlemagne as ancestors. <laughs> and that's pretty much the same family tree that that I've got. Yes. Um, I didn't direct it that way. It went that way. And obviously some of it is based on controversial things like Abraham, David, and Solomon. But Ralph Ellis's work points in that direction for these people. Constantine and Charlemagne, I could show you on the family tree and make a damn good case for that at least. Some additional thoughts. This is the next tweet by her. Um, some additional thoughts. They use symbols like the butterfly to denote monarch MK Ultra. We know that. They use cats to denote beta sex slave MK Ultra. We know that. They call themselves lions, snakes, and reptiles. They worship will and intellect above all and are godless. We saw Soros say something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Those were the key ones. Her next two tweets are kind of getting into details that I'm still mulling over, but that first one was really kind of interesting because it confirmed what I had found through the family trees. This next one is from Jenna Jameson. We all know who she is, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, she's been tweeting out some pretty heady stuff about Hollywood and the occult and child trafficking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I picked up on this tweet she made. She says, the reason why Hollywood has been so incredibly silent on child sex trafficking is not only do they partake – They are covering for the big league hitters, the ones that hide in the shadows under the cover of a crown. Mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> and somebody replied to her and said, I don't think the one alleged who I think you're referring to as being under the cover of a crown is particularly much hiding for what's that worth. And she's, of course, referring to Prince Andrew, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Her response after that is, I'm not referring to the man in the news. She's referring to the ones who remain hidden, not the royals as we know them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And then there's another reply, and child trafficking isn't even the big one. It's the satanic torturing that is the end game, adrenochrome. She doesn't deny that. She says it all ties together. Yep. So, and then as a final image, congratulations, Zach, you made it. Congratulations, audience, you made it. This is a screen grab from Sound of Freedom, which, you know, just came out a little while ago. Mm -hmm. Is that a crown? And at, pardon me? Is that a crown? Tattoo? Yes, it is. Mm. If you look closely, this is kind of the climax of the film where he finally finds that girl. Mm -hmm. She briefly turns around in front of him. And look what's tattooed on the back of her neck. I think the makers of that movie put that in there on purpose but never said anything about it. Mm -hmm. It's signaling. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, that's it. We made it, man. <sighs> Awesome. Mind blown. Mind blown. All right. Uh, let me give my final thank yous here. Crane Up says, uh, man, Zach and Duffy, I'm going to need to Zoom FaceTime call with Anka Vanka. She's been holding out on me. Zach, she's still in Florida with her mom. Anka Vanka, if you're over there in the uh, in the pill chat, uh, it, I, I hope you're having a great time down here in Florida. It was great to meet you in person. Uh, and then also... Filter Dog One says, "This is a good time to let people know that they have an option with Pilled. We did go that one." Uh, Filter Dog also said, "Those night vision are going to come in handy for hunting parties." Yeah, I've got my night vision, my night vision binoculars right over here. Uh, Space Coast Patriot says, "I love this history, Deppy." Filter Dog says, uh, "I'm not doing 33 after this show." And then, thank you for the overtime. It's a great show. Dreadquarters says, great work, Duppy, and thank you for hosting, Zach. Filterdog says, what makes this interview is so good is that RP78 is into it. Absolutely. I am here for this. Let me tell you guys. And, and then Forrest Friend says, uh, thank you so much. This is fascinating. Uh, thank you, most of all, Duppy. If you want to go ahead and um, uh, I'd offer you the opportunity to give final thoughts to the audience. Well, um, you know, this all started with symbology. And a little bit of a skepticism about the Pazer theory. And um, it, it led down a big, deep, deep, deep path. Um, there's a lot more material out there that you can find on my pill page. There's about 50 hours of recorded stuff. Wow. Um, some of it is this material, but a lot of it's... Um, Going through Hillary Clinton's bloodline and other English nobility families, Romney's bloodline, stuff like that. And, and, you know, many, many of them, they trace back to the English nobility families. And, and there's a theme to this. Um, maybe the biggest theme of all. And that is, if you look back at human history... We've been very lucky to have been born now, I think. I agree. Um, as difficult as man, it is right now. <laughs> common man led a pretty pretty nasty life for millennia mm -hmm. with these people ruling over them. 
And, you know, uh, up until 1500, feudalism was the dominant form of bondage. We were all serfs to these people. They owned everything. We were their labor. What happened, I think, 1492, Columbus discovered the New World or rediscovered it, if you acknowledge what we were talking about earlier with the Phoenicians. Mm -hmm. They needed people to go conquer the New World. They let us off the leash because that's when feudalism ended. They let us off the leash to help them conquer the new world. Now that we've conquered it and we've helped build our digital prison, they're ready to make us serfs again. Yep, absolutely. How's that for creepy? Oh, God, you're, you're totally right. I mean they would like nothing more than to see us all reduced to third world status, uh, essentially with our, our hands out begging for – what scraps they're willing to hand out because, after all, we will own nothing and be happy. Yeah. Yeah, just like the peasants of old. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, once again, Duppy. I sincerely appreciate it. I am definitely looking forward to part three, and we might even have to do part four so that we can get some calls in and get people uh, asking questions because I know people are out there biting their tongues right now. All right, so uh, as we said earlier, you can check out additional stuff on Ankavanka's Rumble channel. It has been uh, going by on the Chiron on the bottom. It's rumble.com forward slash user forward slash Ankavanka, and that's A-N-Q. A-V-A-N-Q-A, and I think I actually have her channel pulled up right here that I am happy to uh, – actually, hold on. I, I want to make sure that I actually pass this link out. Ankavanka, there she is. All right, and uh, here is the link to that. I'm passing that out over on Rumble, passing that out over on Getter, passing that over on Pilled. And uh, and that will do it for us tonight. Uh, don't forget, we'll be live again tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And my guest is going to be Boyd Anderson. So hopefully I'll see you then. Good luck and God bless. Peace.